Do, how do we even start these anymore, Michael? Welcome we just, to the nonprofit podcast. I, we usually just start we, talking, and then it—that's true. I love we were it. T- we were previously talking about beer. Yeah, so we figured we should off. try and record it. Um, we're joined in the um, prod- the uh, podcast studio today with uh, Mr. Jack Carr. And thanks for having me. It's um, such an honor to be here. It's crazy. I'm, I am ha- having read the. <laughs> it's unbelievable that you made three books in such a short period of time. Um, having read all three of them recently, I was just, um, the, the overlap between people that we know and, and that sort of thing has, um, was shocking. And then when our friend Trevor said, Oh, I can, I can uh, get Jack to come down and if you want, I was like, that'd be super fucking cool. <laughs> oh, man. Jack, <laughs> so thank you for no, being open absolutely. to it. And, of course, and, uh, of course. Yeah. Trevor's amazing. Such a, a great friend and, uh, such a cool guy, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad. I think I, I hope. I wish that I knew you uh, before I wrote that section in the book that actually mentions you, because then I could have fact-checked it rather than just <laughs> online, like hoping I got it kind of close to being right. So uh, it, <laughs> hopefully it's close. It, 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 yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I can't even remember that. I, I was just like re- reading through. I mean, how I how I discovered the books and you um, in in the first place was because somebody said was telling me, "Hey, I was reading this book." And you're and this guy, you know, name chat. You just, like talked about you and Jim Jones and that kind of thing. And, and I was like, "What is this?" Yeah, I think and, Jim Jones made all three books, and then the uh, the development of our cold weather system of the cold weather yeah, clothing system, which that. is I'm, you know, honestly, awesome. I'm more proud of that than I am of Jim Jones. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that probably <laughs> saved more lives and did I, I mean, revolution. You'd be so surprised. I showed up at SEAL Team 5 yeah. in 1997. I got there and I thought, man, I'm going to show up here in these golden Connex boxes. We'll open with all this great gear because in Buds, you just get some old <laughs> Vietnam type stuff yeah. or whatever. Uh, and I show up and I'm looking at their cold weather gear and I'm looking at their kind of outdoor stuff. And it's ridiculous. It's like, like spear, I could, whatever. It version. wasn't even. It was just stuff that they bought. Like okay, it's like someone that didn't know what they were doing, and walked into like say a, not even an REI. Let's say a like a big five. Okay, and then was like, <laughs> oh, let's get this. I think this and this because we saw it maybe in a movie, or I think you'd probably need boots and maybe like some rain gear or something. So and, that's what you had. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, because I'd spent my whole life in the outdoors and had gone to Alaska uh, to do a semester in Alaska with Knowles, yeah. and and I see the boots they're issuing and then the packs they're issuing and the boots they're issuing were something that you'd wear you know just to hike around let's say moab in the springtime without a pack <laughs> with a, yeah and then they're sending you to kodiak alaska for a month totally wet you know crazy conditions with this 150 pound pack because you have your radio crazy big radio in there and all so this was other stuff. The, the, so even in the late 90s the cold the cold weather debt was in kodiak yep <sighs> yeah, i don't know when they opened it but by the time i got to the team in 97 it was up there okay yeah so um but Barklow wasn't there yet. No, nope, he was at Team Five with me. He That's was where I te- met him. Th- okay, yeah. And then um, was Scott Williams up there running it? I don't know who's up there running it on my first trip. I was a brand new guy, and my first trip was and probably not paying attention eight. exactly to everything. Yeah. You, you know who your chief is, your platoon, your LPO, yeah. and then your buddies. Like anybody else <laughs> above that is like, huh? But who's this guy? You know, he's not out in the field with us. When when we did the um, um it would have been like 
the following year, maybe June. So we started, um, man, that whole PCU project happened really fast. Yeah. Um, and it started as a phone call to Johnny who runs for spear now, um, you know, from a bomb, you know, someplace in Afghanistan, you know, saying we are freezing our fucking asses off. You have to help us. (laughs) Yeah. And Johnny knew me from climbing, knew that I'd done a bunch of different technical consulting for um, Patagonia, for Low Alpine, for some yeah. other companies in the past. And and, uh, um, and and he called me up and said, hey, man, could you help us do this thing? And I'd already started doing some work with uh, guys on the Army side. And, and um, I said, oh, yeah, you wait, you're going to give me basically, it's not unlimited, but it's unlimited to me. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Like I've never seen a decimal point in that right. place. Um, and, uh, to, to, to help modern, like to, to make current military cold weather clothing system, you know, rival what is available in the civilian world, which is, I think the kind of the first time at least, mm-hmm. um, that it ever happened. So. And then with some of the materials like that level five, the soft shell stuff. So great. Um, was, uh, I mean that fabric that got developed for that, cause it had to be manufactured in the U S to be right. you know, very compliant. compliant. Um, I mean, it was at that point that, that, that system came out and it was actually better than the Patagonia regulator system that I had worked on with Duncan Ferguson. Nice. Um, and I still use that stuff. It's great. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. Like I, I still have a ton of prototypes. <laughs> nice. Not that I go outside that much anymore, but, <laughs> um, but it worked really, really good. It was so great. And coming from and, what we had in, up to that point, I mean, it was a complete game chaser and it came out about the same time that we started getting some actual good gear for plate carriers and whatever yep. else you were getting it kind of came out at the same time as you got this big bag of stuff because up to that point it was like some Vietnam got- era stuff and people would just kind of put you know there was a couple nylon tactical nylon companies out there Blackhawk yeah. was out there London Bridge on the east coast yep. um, and so uh, you just kind of put something together usually with your own money yeah. Um, yeah and then then we got these got the got our cold weather system and we got this gear at the same time and it was just incredible. so there's the PC clothing system and then but then scott williams who was running the kodiak debt at that point um get started you know coming around the outdoor industry and put together what i think what you guys would have gotten in the duffel bag would have mm-hmm. been i think it uh personal environmental protection system something Maybe. it was like the pepsi system pepsi, I that's think. it that's it's it yep. like, <laughs> nice. that's it i haven't heard that in a while yeah yeah and then scott went he left kodiak went to work um, i think he took over fred chan's job running the special projects the development team at Natick. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, where he ended up after that, but yeah, that stuff was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but it was forever cemented in my mind, walking into the, the supply, uh, department at seal team five and looking what was on the shelves and thinking, Oh my gosh, I know so much more than everyone at this team. And even the people that had done a little bit, cause team two at the time, those guys had the expertise. This well, was so team 90s. two was the winter, winter yep. warfare. Exactly. And they were going to team. Europe and they yeah. were, they had a good, pretty good deal there. Uh, pre nine 11. Uh, they were going out and doing all that stuff, working with, uh, with our counterparts. In, uh, in Europe and climbing peaks and, and, and further in Scandinavia. Yep, I mean, I remember exactly. Scott Williams talking about some, um, you know, sort of exchanges they'd done with, you know, Norwegian Jaegers mm-hmm. and um, yep. saying that, yeah, they had their, 
shit down a little bit better than us. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna work <laughs> you know, with when, those when guys we arrived there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I wasn't at that team, but I thought because I was at Team Five, and back then we were regionally oriented. Yeah, and so Team Five was kind of like the Korea, Siberia-ish type team. Yep. And so I thought, oh, we're gonna do a lot of cold weather stuff. It's gonna be awesome. These guys are gonna know what they're doing. Next thing you know, you're in Not Guam. Really. You're in Guam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're in Guam. And everybody wants to go to Thailand. <laughs> yeah. you know, no one wants to go to Alaska. They all want to get back to Thailand uh, to their second families. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> is, was there like a was there a shift? Maybe we should edit that part out. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody kind of understands yeah, that, you know, it. you team guys were pirates. <laughs> but it's, uh, but I remember these boots that we got. I mean, they still stick out in my mind to this day and how everyone was so excited. We got these before we went to Kodiak. And I'm looking at them because I spent that, I don't remember, a couple of months up there in that semester in Alaska. And we used, we had you know, the hard shell plastic stuff up there at yeah. the time. And then the leather boots that we had were very thick for that ankle support and carrying these packs and all the rest of it. And I'm looking at what we got issued and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And no one, I'm looking around and everybody. But it's like, oh, cool. Like, oh, no. No, no, not, not cool. cool. No, so I brought my cool. own. You know, I brought my own and we get up Cold. there. Cold. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> exactly. They got wet. You know, they got soaked and then they froze and there's no ankle support and it's just horrible. Um, but anyway, when, the, when that system came out and we finally got that sent to everyone um, force-wide and yeah. everyone started to go to Kodiak as part of their basic training. So basic underwater demolition seal training, six months, then to seal qualification training, another six months. Yeah. And part of that is going to Alaska for a month. So now- Which in some dudes doozies. probably would have ended up in Alaska never having seen snow, depending oh, yeah. on their background, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. After September 11th, we went over to um, uh, to Kuwait and did shipboardings. Out yeah. of there. Took over for Team 3. And before September 11th, shipboardings, those were the deal. Yeah. Uh, after September 11th, not so much. Everyone not, wants to go to Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. But those guys went. So we'd gone to Kodiak. We had our snowshoes. We had all this training. We had the gear. And they sent the Team 3 guys into Afghanistan, and they had none of that sort of thing. And yeah. they needed that sort yeah. of thing because they're going there after September 11th. It's winter, fall into winter, and uh, they needed all that stuff. But it's just interesting how the military works. Uh, so we, there, was, um, there was a kind of actually a really good climber, uh, Team 3, in that period. Um Zach was his first name. I can't remember afterwards, but they had. But um, when I was working with them, it had been. It was like post the shipboardings and some. Mm -hmm. I think maybe they took a couple of oil rigs, mm -hmm. something yep, like that. Right maybe in, uh, in Iraq, yeah, um, right off the bat. Yeah, that that. Uh, um, I mean, it was a pretty interesting period of activity. Yeah, like, and it just seemed. And the guy who was running, the guy who uh, you know the the uh, PCU that whole thing because it. I, it eventually got issued to all of SOCOM, yeah. but it got started with Navy money, and it was, okay. um, um, it was a, and I can't remember uh, Admiral, and his first name was Randy, um, and he was the one who basically signed the check to make that whole thing happen, and and him. it was, I mean, I mean, in terms of just the development, the fast track nature of it, I mean, that phone call happened, I think, in March of '02. And guys, the first iterations were issued to guys in January of 03. Oh, wow. I mean, it was like that yeah. fast. And one of the materials down selects we did was we went up to the Kodiak Dad. Nice. Um, and it was like, yeah, we can, we can go. We can you know base out of here, and then we'll go into the interior of the island. And I'm just like, wait, the highest peak on Kodiak Island is lower than my house in Salt Lake. Oh, nice. It, <laughs> But it was June. I mean, we still got to go skiing in June. Oh, wow. Because um, yeah, yeah. it's it, it, altitude-wise doesn't matter. I mean, you realize, like, since you were there, like, oh, wait, treeline on Kodiak Island is like 400 feet above sea level because the wind 
is so it's an amazing environment, especially when you're coming off those boats and you're in your dry suit and then you're coming up out of the water and yeah. you have your fins, you have your, your dry suit on, you have all that sort of thing. And then you have to transition when it's snowing, sleeting, raining, whatever it may be, all three within a period of an hour or whatever yeah. it is on Kodiak, uh, holding security, doing all that stuff in a place that's- uh, Do your rewarming drills. Do the rewarming drills. <laughs> and then up you go and you have your snowshoes. So now you have your, your dry suit, which isn't light, uh, in your back with yeah. all your other military stuff. And now you're up and you're in the snow and you have your snowshoes on and up you go uh, to go back down the other side of the island a couple of days later and then put that stuff on again and then swim out to meet the boats. Yeah. So it's, it's a good place to test gear. So if you were there um, was, well, no, Chief Cates would have been at Team 5. I don't know. Craig Cates. Yeah. Um, that was my was, favorite trips, though. No, that, that Kodiak trip is my favorite Naval Special Warfare trip because it's just that's my, that's my environment. Like I love it up there. It's beautiful. I, I'd, I'd move there if I could. Man. My wife might not like that. Yeah. So another a good friend of mine who was at, at Team 5 um, and later 7, uh, a guy named Jared Holferty, um, I think he might still be up there at the Kodiak Dead. And then Steve Brown yeah, yeah. Um, went there he, he, yeah. he, uh, after his tour back east. Yep. Um, at Damneck, he, he went and – and I think, he, I think Steve now I – th- I think he has the, the record largest grizzly bear ever – I saw that video of okay. him taking that shot. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, 300 wind mag. A <laughs> uh, couple Christ. shots, but uh, the first one, the last ones were just follow-up. The first one did it. But uh, That yeah, thing it's incredible. fucking massive. Yeah, that was crazy. I did a couple of really good trips with him. Um, yeah, it's a good spot. Guys. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's yeah. what the security was for, right? On, on <laughs> <Cody>. <laughs> well, we all thought of it. You know, you're all you're hearing these stories. You really don't want five five six at that point, though, right? No, no. There, back in my day, we were using the uh, we had the M14s. Up there. Oh, okay. So oh, I was going to say at least you had actual firearms and yeah, not yeah. rubber guns. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> like which I've so. heard some crazy stories about guys being out there. So this like, seems like a theme through you, but you're like a fairly geeked out gearhead which i really enjoyed yeah hence that's how we started this off talking about gear totally you know? <laughs> I, well that's how, i mean that was kind of the funny thing because i like i just noticed well maybe this is kind of how it happened for me and, and by the way did i hear you right you read the third one yeah i thought we agreed not to so i wasn't reading it <laughs> i couldn't help it okay <laughs> i got started and i was like Son of a bitch. oh man I, like that oh, the opening scene i'm just like okay this is gonna be horrible and then but there was a point where i almost stopped reading because once um, the the uh, fuck it spoiler alert whatever once the sort of rescue mission gets launched and there's a dog involved I'm like oh, don't shit. kill the dog do yeah. not kill the dog you're not supposed fucking to hate you I know. you kill the dog okay oh sparkle yeah what? you're not supposed to kill the dog no you can't yeah, you want to remain a hero <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> there's a really there's a really cool like pendulum effect because I don't know how I, I honestly don't know how I heard about it but really to be honest like reading your book saved me in a in a time when the world was kind of crashing and everything was becoming dark and i was becoming like hyper obsessed with trying to stay relevant like oh no what's going to happen tomorrow is the like shutdown pandemic disease viruses earthquake and, until i realized <laughs> yeah. and i was literally like i was so sick of listening to every fucking podcast cuz everybody was talking about the same thing but no one knew anything hmm. and then i was like you know what like if i'm going to drive around i'm not going to live i'm going to listen to some book on tape and that popped up nice. and i was like awesome it sounds like fucking shoot 'em up and like some adventuring <laughs> stuff and i started listening to it and as the books go on and by the way, and I was like, after a, like a day of listening to that, I was like, fuck everybody. Like, 
I don't care about the news I anymore. I want to immerse myself uh, in nice. this world. Awesome. I'm like yeah. sitting in my garage listening to the story like oh, after driving so cool. home. And I was like, it's so well put together that it really does. Like, it, it's such a fun read. It really mm-hmm. is. But the thing that started to, I like the dropping of gear and like stuff that you kind of know about or I've been involved with. And then you like mention some people that <laughs> we know and I'm like, I like black rival coffee. And then it's yeah. like half face blades. And he starts like bouncing and ricocheting back until it's like, okay, fucking Jim Jones. Like, it's like, yeah. okay, now we're like a, a degree of separation or now you're just talking about the thing that yeah. we are. And you're like, all right. Like somehow this needs to happen, but yeah. I just wanted to thank you for like oh, man. the clarity. Like if anybody hasn't read them and they are suffocating in like whatever bullshit is going on and they haven't a way to relieve themselves um, as in like, there's no, you know, true entertainment Our news is our entertainment and it really isn't good entertainment. Right. Not, he- not, all the t- not healthy all the time. Yeah. It's, it's like causes anxiety and all these other garbage this this is such a good way to do it the story is phenomenal i appreciate that and it actually ended up being a very therapeutic process in that like when i started i thought it was just going to be i'm going to sit down and i have these all these ideas i'm going to choose one i'm going to write this great adventure story people are going to grab it from the hudson news as they get on their flight to the bahamas or hawaii um and then i started writing and it became a very therapeutic very personal experience because I delved into all the emotions and feelings behind things that I was involved with downrange mm-hmm. and then took those and applied them to a completely fictional narrative. But I mean, Simon & Schuster sees thousands of these every year and they chose this first book and these other ones as well mm-hmm. uh, for a reason. And I think that was because of those emotions that come out as being so authentic, so raw, so real, because they are. It's not me oh, yeah. talking to a sniper and interviewing right. them and saying, hey, what did it feel like to yeah. go into Ramadi in 06 at the height of the war and set up in a, in a heavily IED corner and then me listening to that and then putting that through my filters of however, you know, my 40 plus years on the planet and uh, and then putting that to a page for a fictional character. No, there wasn't any of those filters. It was all just how that sort of thing felt. I was actually, right you were page. actually set up on that corner with exactly. those guys. Yeah. I mean, at that time. And I mean, and being attached to the, I mean, it can, I guess we can say to debt one at that point, right? Yeah. So that was uh, um, summer or that was, yeah, summer of 04. And uh, yeah, Marine Corps, uh, Marsoc debt one was stood up. And, and in Fallujah. And that was, that was um, in the Joff with those guys. They had a sniper team that, uh, that they took in. I took in a SEAL sniper team. We had the Polish Grom with us. Mm. Um, and then we had some SF guys that had a different area of the city. And we were all supporting a conventional uh, move into t- retake the city yeah. of Najaf. Um, but being attached to Marsoc, those guys were so amazing. I mean, I know you worked with them, got to shoot with them, got to, I mean, they were an amazing group of people. Even, even like, but at SOTG, so before, like, but, you know, basically months before or six months before, you know, debt one became a, a thing. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and, and just meeting and realizing like, okay, if it's, if it's going to be run by Colonel Coates, this is going to be, and, and I mean, what a dream team in yeah, a way, like did. to take they, the they entire hand-picked. Marine Corps handpicked from recon from every other yeah. sort of, I guess, MOS um, to come and be a part of that thing. Yeah, it was pretty special. Uh, oh, man. And they took really good care of me. Once we got overseas, um, then so we'll call him Major K because I don't know what he's doing yeah. today. Um, it was so great. He like he just kind of like, adopted me, took me under his wing. They had a great operations officer, I remember. Uh, their, uh, their master sergeant, oh, man, 
he, he ended up going to another kind of different unit uh, in the army after that, and he was amazing. Uh, we'll just call him, his last name starts with an O. Yeah. And uh, he was just an incredible guy, but he was so cool as far as mentoring teaching and me just absorbing all that so it was a it was an incredible experience to to work with those guys and they were and major k of course worked at the the mountain warfare training center Center, yeah uh, which when i was a kid uh i remember my dad and i were going backpacking and i was in fifth grade or fourth grade and so i have my external frame i think it was a kelty maybe i wish i kept all my old packs we kept them for so many years and i think my mom finally tossed them but uh so it was just like a i don't know maybe just a smaller adult pack because they yeah. back in the, the mid eighties, they didn't make children's packs for that sort of thing. And uh, I remember going up and it was raining out and it was right around the, the mountain warfare center where they do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I saw this guy hiking out and he was in, you know, camis yeah. and he had a bow and his face was all camied up and it was fall. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Like I want to be like that guy. He's coming out. He doesn't have a pack on. Maybe he had a small one. I don't even remember, but I remember he's in camis. Yeah. His face, it was clearly military gear. He had short hair and he had a bow in his hand. And I was like, Oh, that's so awesome. Like I want to be doing this backpacking thing, but I also want to have a weapon. And, and, is, <laughs> and, and is that when you started shooting a bow? At that I point? Shot before like you that. Yeah, I okay. shot before that. I kind of grew up doing it from, uh, I think, age five is when I got my first bow. Wow. Um, not that I'm any good at it, but I just did it uh, at a very early age, shot in our backyard. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I was climbing up on the roof and taking shots at angles and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> set these ropes up the chimney and in these trees because I back then there was no internet. You couldn't uh, like research how to train to be a SEAL or that. Now you can spend your whole life just looking at that and not actually and doing, not actually it. doing yeah. it. And then uh, feel like you did it. <laughs> right, yeah. And then you can make some comments online about it because yeah. you know what you're doing but uh but back then you know, there's a couple of videos out there that a couple of videos on uh you know some seals in vietnam there's a couple of, like betamax tapes that i had i got them from the back yes. of soldier of fortune i think and nice. uh as part of that they showed a little bit of the training the same obstacle yeah. course that then however many years later i'd actually run yeah and uh and so i thought okay look at these guys in the obstacle course look what they're doing in, in vietnam uh here's my backyard what can i do i can put a rope here i can i can rappel off the chimney i can take shots with my bow at angles down into these targets yeah. Um, so I was train, trying to train myself up and I was you know, pulling myself up through the basketball hoop because it was a little different than a regular pull up. Yep. And uh, so I was just trying to do some things like that. A little jungle gym in the backyard. So I was changing my grip up and sprinting That's our hill. We had a really steep hill. So I'd sprint the hill, come back down. I do. I remember I was, I forget how old that was, sophomore in high school, whatever, however old that is, 14, maybe 15. And uh, I was just doing 20 pull-ups, bam, because you're so light. Oh, you yeah. don't know how to eat. Yeah. So I'd go have I had some ramen noodles really or whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah, you just, uh, in the microwave, would come back. What were those uh, Upton noodles, whatever, you, the styrofoam cup. Yeah, styrofoam cup. The, yeah, yeah, that's it. So Lipton that was like, noodles. yeah, Lipton, Lipton noodles. So, so I would have that, but I'd do, yeah, 20 pull-ups, run that hill, come down, pull myself through the basketball hoop, climb the rope in the backyard, sprint the hill again, and then have some of those Lipton noodles. It's like you invented CrossFit. I was ahead of my time. It's like, Jesus Christ. But all it was was looking at those videos of those guys running the obstacle course in the same yeah. teams looking at a couple probably some movies in there too and then uh and then thinking oh how do i train myself up for this oh i sprint this hill i do this i ride my bike here i run these trails and all that this sort is of the re- this is the job requirement and that it's funny we were out um speaking of that particular o course i'm sure it's the same one mm-hmm. um i was out running a climbing course for guys from team three and team five and I mean, Scott Backies was actually with me and went out and went through the Oak Ocean and everything, get at the end. And then there's like a plaque of all the, and it was at, at that point, it was still Neil Roberts who had the uh, fastest time through. Wow. Forgot I don't about know if that. that's I forgot changed about or that. not, but that guy was a stud. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think, 
I don't know what it is now, but uh, that's a great workout. Oh, um, yeah. I think I actually have the plans for that obstacle course somewhere. I think I might have acquired them along the way. We just um, need a, we just need to put a dirty name in the parking it. lot out yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking legit. about turning it into a sand pit, actually. Just uh, like, seriously. Just dumping sand everywhere. Yeah. Because of all that tribal clash stuff. Oh, yeah, right. I might make one one day. Like if I get the uh, the compound in Montana, Idaho, something like that. It's just such a great thing to do. You go out, hit that awesome. O course, yeah. and that's your workout. Like you do that. Oh, maybe yeah. do it front. Maybe do it backwards. And we started doing that, yeah. doing it backwards. You do multiples. You do one, and then yeah. you do a do a run for a couple miles on that soft sand. Come back, do it again. Um, like that's a good workout for the day. Like that's that's I, legit. No I'm kind of I'm curious. Like there's a couple things. Um, I find it like I don't know. Maybe shocking that you were able to figure something out without somebody giving you a written program on what to do. <laughs> shocking. <laughs> totally shocking these days. Cause people like, I, I really think that's like a lot, like I remember doing it as a kid, like how, what can I set up? And at the time I was like trying to become better at rock climbing. Oh, I thought and I was you were like, that, this is pre ninja. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah okay. But when it got into that, it was like, well, duh, I'm going to make my own sword or whatever yeah. the thing is. <laughs> nice. I'm just going to like do, you know, back handsprings in the, and I literally like, I mean, when I was your age, I was like, okay, I, I literally thought, you know, Ninja was a profession, which it is, by the way. <laughs> I was not wrong about that. So I would set up, I would like, okay, I need to learn how to flip around. So I would go to- But it's like more of a contract gig, right? It's not like a salary <laughs> position. I think because well, it's at a university. So great. Oh, okay. <laughs> teaching about Ninja history or whatever. I love so it. So I would like go, oh, okay. you know- Sign like, me up. Ninjas flip around. So I'd like join all the cheerleaders in their tumbling class and I'd be wearing a fucking ninja suit. But it's like. I remember those ninja suits. Uh, yeah. For sure. It, it, like it you had a magazine in the back. You could get those. You had the white yes. one or the black one. Yeah. Totally. I had my camo. stars. That I still cam- have them. That a camo one. Nice. Um, oh, that's next level. Yeah. You had Soldier of Fortune. I think we had like, you know, there was Black Belt Magazine. Oh, yeah. And then you could get all the manuals in the back, like Secret Guide to Making Ninja Weapons. Paladin Press. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Secret Guide to Making <sighs> smoke devices oh i had most of those and and this is kind of the weird thing that i think like it's like man i really feel like some people are gonna miss out i I believe you're right yeah that you knew at a very young age what you wanted to do i did not because the thing that i wanted to do was fiction (laughs) i thought we just discussed this (laughs) well there was an article literally like i think two weeks ago that came out that like actually ninja is now a profession and you can get a degree and it's a phd send me your check yeah yeah. (laughs) totally it's the internet version (laughs) of the classifieds in the back exactly like we discussed earlier yep i really feel like i could still do that and be so happy with my exit like if it's like well you know it happened a couple decades late but i think i would be okay with it was it like did you know (laughs) did you know navy did you know like how much of it was revealed to you when at a young age you just knew i want to hike around and hold a weapon yeah that was just natural like that's just a natural thing for me so i was i naturally gravitated to that very early age mm-hmm. but uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II he was a Corsair pilot which is that plane that had yeah. the gull wings that folded yeah. up the, they did a, a TV show in the yeah. late 70s early 80s called Black Sheep Squadron with Robert, Robert Conrad, Conrad. Yeah, exactly <laughs> who was my like man hero when he um, had a TV West. show called the Wild Wild yeah. West yeah and they had mm-hmm. the kick ass gadgets awesome on that yeah, show and then Artemis Gordon so great yeah so great I- <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, my dad. Yeah, how is this even watching. possible? It's so great. <laughs> so well, great. you do have so, a lot of pop culture in you somehow. I do. While you were well, that's playing, why that's who raised me was essentially like you know Stallone, Schwarzenegger, like the, those Oscar guys, Magnum like P. Magnum PI yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. Like those are those are like father figures essentially. I, well, I've really enjoyed watching your like Monday Magnum PI thing. <laughs> yeah, because uh, and I said that maybe I don't know. This is a couple of years ago because I, I say bring back the rather short Ocean Pacific shorts. Oh, yeah, all oh, for so <laughs> short. Oh my gosh, this is a really and we actually wore those thing, in buds though. all through dive oh, yeah. phase. You have to <laughs> wear those things. You're running in them. They're chafing. A horribly designed piece yeah. of Terrible. equipment, but they and are they chafing. They're yeah. really chafing. And I think they haven't changed since the early '40s. So there was no design changes in those things. I can't imagine <laughs> they still wear them at buds, but they. they I might. still have a pair. Well, I still have three pairs of Ranger, uh, Ranger panties oh, that nice. my friend got me, and I still wear them. It's like sleeping shorts running. Yeah, around. much more comfortable. I can't run in them any longer because I don't like being that uncomfortable, but or making other people that uncomfortable. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right that's it right there. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the Magna PI. You thing, should send them to. Um, oh man, his um, name just got just escaped me. He was here for a week. Oh, our friend in in the in uh, Southern California. A lot of guys love those Ranger panties. Oh, oh yeah, far yeah, far uh, the Bear Jew. Yeah. yeah, the Bear Jew. He would he would rock those. <laughs> I, no I, problem. It might be way too modest for him. <laughs> that's true. He does. Those things are pretty ridiculous. He does have a wearing, pretty what? strong relationship with Speedo. It he he really does. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of those shorts, when I got to Team Five, it was an actual approved uniform that you could wear yeah. boots with your dive socks. So these like beige socks yeah. folded over the top of your combat boots. Those tiny, tiny Short. cotton canvas whatever shorts, yeah. super yeah. tiny, and your camouflage. What they call it a blouse. So let's just call it a, a, a shirt <laughs> yeah. over the top of that. Yeah. And with your name tag and everything on it, so it's you couldn't see that you didn't have uh, that you were wearing pants. Shorts. Yeah, it was just <laughs> it just looked like because those military uniforms oh, they come yeah, down just, right. just to like the edge it's of those like shorts. The but look. that was allowed. You could actually wear that yeah. and conduct business on base in the late '90s when I got to SEAL Team Five. Of course, only the I, older guys did it, and we were like, "What? That's horrible." Yeah, I got to yeah. go give a brief to someone that I don't have a lot of respect for. So this is how I'm going. <laughs> yeah, because it it's uh, acceptable. Exactly, those things were horrible, That's and then when we were in. Was they some, a couple times they had uh, uh, news whatever would come and do a little story on yeah, SEAL training sure. or whatever and so inevitably the instructor would have us do these things called good morning darlings yeah, yeah. when you're on your back yeah. and you spread your legs in those shorts yeah. and to the to the yeah, four count or whatever it was and uh, so they got a nice view of uh, everything of everything I'm okay if they don't bring those shorts back like I'm I'm pretty good with it well, I think I, I think seeing your influences I mean I, maybe it's a generational thing maybe it's um maybe it's something that's lost and that's why it sounds familiar or whatever the the tom Selleck thing hits home because i used to describe it um as like you know i do have a dad um but i was raised more to become like tom Selleck or like a feature of like this adventuring male that's you know all-encompassing a general man that can do lots of different things and is kind of suave and i like that's kind of how i feel about your your character in your books is like you really embodied a modern version of that. It's, it's really well done. Thank yeah. you. That's pretty much, I mean, it's, it's by design, but it's yeah. also uh, just so much a part of me, as you can tell, just from my posts yeah. and sure. talking yeah. to me and whatever yeah. else, that it's very natural for that. Just like the gear, it would be yeah. very difficult for me not to mention a type of gear uh, for sure. because it tells a story. When I see somebody, uh, like the pistol we had out earlier, yeah. Um, yeah. like every, how you carry it, uh, you know, what you're wearing, yeah. it tells a story about that person. But, 
So oh, I use yeah. that as character development tools. Th- that's um, a genuine feature that I think um, maybe I, it subconsciously comes through the book. Like when you were describing the emotional states of sitting up in a, you know, as a sniper or something like that. And how the how we normally go about getting information from people. When we see mm-hmm. this all the time is you like your functions away from uh, as abstraction, right? How did this person think about it? Already you're removed because that person is trying to rationally explain how they yep. feel, which is an irrational way to do it. And instead, you can kind of put the mechanisms in place based off of your emotional states through these things. And I think that genuineness comes out as like a, a you know as nonfiction as it can get. So thank you. It's it's super interesting. I mean, this, this idea of um, you know, using the gear or how someone is dressed or how they move to form a picture of them without language, without any kind of exchange. And hmm. um, recently, let's say there's, you know, been some individuals showing up at protests um, uh, costumed in a particular way. And I'm just like, uh, that guy never shoots that rifle, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, sure. you, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, or, or you go to the range and you see how people, you know, and if I, especially, or I'll go out to public land, uh, since all the ranges were closed here for mm. COVID, so I got to go out to the West desert. Sometimes I'll go out, it might be a weekend or something like that. And I get to t- kind of take a look around at how people, you know, what they put, well, why'd you buy that? Don't you know that like the high point is not really the high <laughs> point of, uh, the, you know, or, or, um, oh, poor guys. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. You know, just so like, oh, steered wrong by that guy at the pawn shop, huh? Uh. Um, or, or, or just how they move, the drills they're conducting. Like, yep. how is this helpful for you to just do mag dumps over, you know, over and over again? And I'm like, okay, I, I drive further away, you know, oh, yeah. fuck my car <laughs> get up out even of range. more yeah. <laughs> to, to, you know, to, 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 to get away. But just like, and in the mountains, it was the same way. Climbing, I mean, you'd like be in the Alps and you'd come across and go, oh, that dude's Italian. That dude's German. Uh, that wow. motherfucker's incompetent. Something bad's going to happen to him. We need to get away. Yeah. Um, you know, just, oh, yeah. it, and it has to do with the gear thing. You opening mm-hmm. that gear locker kind of told you everything you need to know about, okay, the cold weather capability of this particular unit. Oh, yeah. Um, or go work with somebody that, um, because that same guy who bought that stuff and didn't know anything, um, he was on a budget, but you know, when I first started working with some of the other, um, you know, tiered units, I'd go to the gear lockers and I'm like, man, you guys have everything and most of it's wrong (laughs) because somebody had like a, they could just go stroke an enormous check. Um, or it was it was all the right stuff, but it was all brand new. Uh, like, yeah, I'll just take this out uh, of the plastic before I go over. I'm like, I uh, might <laughs> want to, you know, break it in. Yeah, or no, no, or even see. Like, it says waterproof, breathable. Did you ever consider that might be a lie? Yeah, test it out. <laughs> you, know, you mean the tactical Birkenstocks were not uh, as advertised? <laughs> no, they they weren't. Even I, I got them resold with rock shoe rubber, and you know, <laughs> I just didn't, you know. But, yeah, back then it's uh, yeah the gear part. So that's how I forget exactly. Cause I, so uh, uh, extreme alpinism. So that I got that early early on because I was coming off uh, well a lifetime of just going into the the backcountry with my parents, just being yeah. drawn to that sort of thing, uh, wanting to go out longer, faster, just interested in gear, uh, just naturally, and uh, then 
doing my semester in Alaska and getting to the team. I, I mean, I had all these old, the old book, Ascent. Um, I mean, all these books yeah, about the Alpine journals and all these things I was reading growing up and just dreaming of all these sort of things. And I thought when I got to the teams that I would do a lot more of it. And what happened was that was not the case. Same thing with martial arts. Like I was early into jujitsu, like early nineties. Okay. Um, and I thought when I got to the teams that I would continue that. It's going to be ninjutsu and, and really, secret <laughs> exactly. art of killing. Yeah. And it really wasn't and, and uh some <laughs> in, guys did it on their own mm-hmm. okay um, and uh but me, so I, so late 90s in the teams was um oh man who was the guy oh, who taught the combatives oh i know who you're talking about uh, i never did that course the uh, the thing the, uh, I, so I, the yeah. No, oh, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. pretty, yeah. <laughs> you made a lot of money off uh, that. Oh <laughs> my god! That, yeah, I mean, because he was. I mean, th- that knowledge, oh that w- that teaching was institutionalized there for a long oh, yeah. time. And there was lawsuits about it, I believe, when they tried to change and contracts yeah. and all sorts of craziness. But uh, but yeah, that was a course that you would go to as a platoon. Maybe, maybe not. It okay. wasn't part. We did like land warfare, yeah. mountain warfare, uh, desert warfare, jumping diving, close quarter combat, urban warfare, like you had to do these major blocks of training. And then there were some other like side ones. And that was one of those ones that was kind of an option that if you had time, maybe you would do that if your LPO and your chief were on board with that sort of thing. Or maybe you'd go to Joshua Tree and climb if your chief was a climber or whatever, things like that. So so that wasn't one that everyone did, but some guys that did do it, they got really into it. Oh yeah, Yeah. so there was, you know the, the really interesting thing for me throughout the whole uh, um, my whole period of time, maybe twenty years there of training military guys, fifteen years I guess, um, wow. w- was how personality driven a lot of the sort of group interests were. Yeah. Um, and because in that same period, like ninety nine, I guess would have been one of the first times I w- went back to uh, Bragg mm-hmm. and w- behind the fence, and I'm there uh, the same day that Hori and Gracie's there. So awesome. One of his sons, I'm 99, so one of his sons is either 15 or 16. I can't remember that kid's name. He was just handed dudes their asses yeah. right and left. Oh yeah. And um and and it was amazing to see like these grown like these total studs <laughs> just getting schooled by a high school kid. <laughs> oh yeah. And true. and to to realize like okay and and then ultimately you know that program got institutionalized at that organization mm-hmm. and hoist was back there for a long time um and uh and he's actually lives up in pocatello now oh, apparently wow. and um just passed uh um just uh be- became a reserve police officer up there oh and i did see that which is he's gonna get people to want to get arrested just to say hi no yeah shit. right no shit That's exactly so awesome. or just like so my friend uh adam boyce who's a um who's a guy on uh up at the doe in uh, in idaho falls uh, one of the security guys there, he had posted something about that and just said, like, um, uh, Spartan mode is his IG oh, handle. Okay. And and he, he had said something like, imagine being pulled over by Hoist. I know. Mouthing off a little bit. Oh, yeah. And then, like, no. waking up wondering what happened. So great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really cool to see the, the evolution That's probably of a dude that. who could use a chokehold. <laughs> With some uh, finesse. I think you know what he's doing. Yeah, probably. But it's really cool to see the evolution of that because, once again, looking at those videotapes, doing all this reading as a kid. My mom was a librarian, so I did all this research into special operations, SEAL teams. uh, So I kind of had, before the internet, as much information as one could possibly have, I think, for being so young, wanting to do it, and having a mom who's a librarian, and having uh, getting these books and magazines and videos and just being all in on it from such an early age. Uh, I think that really... I got to see the evolution of it in the teams who were behind the power curve as far as combatives. Okay. Like not anymore. Yeah. But back then, because 
uh, you saw tough man contests like early on before the UFC. Yeah, yeah. And yes. you're like, wow, this is amazing. This is so cool. It's like it's a pay per view type thing when pay per view is kind of like what you have to like. Anyway, you have to give money before for the this? UFC. Yeah, and then the UFC came in. I forget what year that was, but I want to say like '93 or something. Yeah, like that. okay. Yeah, early but it really kind of took like people saw the Gracies come in, saw them school everybody, and then people kind of woke up to this ground. But wasn't thing. it originally designed? to basically prove the, the the value of like okay we're going to take the youngest gracie the you know the smallest weakest you know whatever one because he's because hoist was I, I think was the guy at that point uh, hoist was like, the weak one was the weak one yeah, yeah they, because they didn't is send, like a he's yeah a, they didn't want to send a, in the other guy because they thought they would he would kill him yeah oh, <laughs> and so i thought it was like the ufc my impression of it you yeah. know whatever um was was that uh it was designed to prove the validity of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which was largely mocked by other... Um, and by the way, the ninja didn't do that great in those early. No, no I saw that. I, I mean, I watched it. I was so young when I watched it. I remember watching so it. And I was just like, oh, the like, ninjas, he's just going to kill everybody. He's going to disappear after. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you have to throw the thing. You have to throw the thing and have yeah. to smoke. smoke bomb. Yeah. And be gone. Yeah. Gone. It'd be like that. And then the sumo, I mean, really got fucked up fast. <laughs> I want to go back I, and watch those in order. And I was talking to someone about oh, this recently, idea. like during COVID, like yeah. get that first one and just watch the evolution of it over time yeah. and see how it has evolved how fighting styles has evolved yeah. uh from that those early fights well, um but yeah for me i was like you know i need to learn how to box yeah and i need to learn how to fight on the ground okay what am i gonna do well, i'm gonna learn how to box mm-hmm. and i'm gonna go to boxing gym and i'm gonna learn this thing called brazilian jiu-jitsu and yeah. uh no and, but so you back, gravitated to that before like oh yeah not early. wrestling a team thing early on yep how do you still wow. do you still train in jiu-jitsu nope. oh nope and uh it, well i thought that i would when i got to the teams and yeah. i i did it sporadically yeah. Uh, throughout my time in the sure. military, but uh, no, it's uh, I was very into it through um, uh, like multiple years before I joined the military, yeah. which was great because by the time I got to the teams, people still had it still hadn't caught on yet. No, so no. you have these big guys that think they're all tough or they're wrestlers, and which is different than uh, that you get. Turns t- out, yeah, yeah. And so it was great just knowing a few things, just just sure. uh, just knowing how to how to mount, knowing how to, how to do yep. a rear naked choke, like these very basic things. Yeah. Um, learning the guard, you know, whatever. A couple of things, like five things. Mm-hmm. That's it. So you like were pretty five, good. Late five 90s. basic, like self-defense yeah. type, like a jujitsu yeah, stuff on yeah. the ground. You know, those five things, and it was yeah. pretty. You were pretty good. Today, I'm, oh my gosh, I mean, I would get creamed. But back then, knowing those and being pretty good at them, uh, and being semi-athletic, who's like, this magician? Good. Exactly, it was great. <laughs> and the wrestlers thought they were so great, whatever. And then they were. Because it was a competition yeah. thing. Instead of trying to break somebody's arm or choke them out, it was, totally, it was so wonderful. I loved it. It was a great time for me to come into the teams. It's shocking to me, uh, just like if a normal person, no athletic ability whatsoever, did jiu-jitsu in this day and age for six months, they could quite literally kill 99% of the people that they run into. Like It's like it's shocking how such people fundamental things can advance you so far but and it's today really, you don't know like today yeah. like back then if someone wasn't in your jiu-jitsu class in like yeah. early 90s yeah. and you're in a fight somebody you're pretty sure if you didn't know him from your class like you're gonna do okay yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. today <laughs> it is so prolific like you don't know like really some little don't. kid oh, nerdy yeah. looking kid with a hat like I'm not going to mess with anybody because there are just so many people that are so good that don't look like it. For, oh, it's like James. It's like a you know 150 pound skinny kid with glasses, and he'll just kill you. Like yeah. so you're you're done. Like I don't. You could be a 250 pound man. I would still be like, well, if 
I'll put money on the little guy. And the little guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the guys in the first book, Marco, in the yeah. first book, a character that people really, really liked oh, and yeah, wanted yeah. to bring yeah. back. Uh, like it's based on a, a friend of mine. Oh, okay. uh, and uh, great, great guy from Mexico and little, but oh my gosh, jujitsu. Yeah, good. He is incredible. He just tossed me around. Uh, it was, yeah, yeah, he's super good. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of people in the, in the novels are based on sure, yeah. people that I know or, yeah, which is kind of <laughs> cool. And do they know this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, most everybody knows it, except the people I don't like. So also, also some of the bad people in there, based on people I had running. So with I've over got time. a qu- okay. We do uh, have yeah, some yeah, questions so I, about some people who I may or may not be able to answer them based off uh, may not advice have of survived to the second book. The only <laughs> thing that I'm wondering is like, is is there gonna be a fuck island? And there's going to be like a potential <laughs> ex-president that visits that island frequently because I know his wife's already dead. I mean, there, there's like, <laughs> there may be. We'll see. In in oh. like we won't. I don't want to get. Like I don't. But reading it, you can't help but laugh about like the general known knowledge about somebody's character, yeah. and you know immediately who you're talking about. Yeah. Um. Do you feel like that's catharsis in a, in a way? Like, oh, yeah. you, like you're speaking, you're not speaking necessarily of your own opinion. You're speaking for like a general consensus from people in your field that might feel a certain way. Oh yeah, no, it and it like I mentioned before, it's very therapeutic to do <laughs> a, a, on a number of fronts. Sure, uh, one of them being to re, being able to explore different things that I was involved with downrange, and and uh, even though I was very lucky, mm-hmm. um, but things that happened downrange because you can be. You can make the best decisions and, and the looking, right yeah. decisions. Yeah. If we were in here talking about it, putting it up on the whiteboard, you can make those downrange under fire and things can still go wrong. Sure. Uh, and you can make the total wrong. If we're in here and we say, you know what you should never do in this situation is this. And, that's and you could do that you do. and it might work out okay. Yeah. And it might not also. And the um, worst thing that can happen is that it does work out okay. <laughs> and then you take <laughs> that lesson you, back. Then you bring that lesson <laughs> sure. back and you're just like, I, we, no, we weren't lucky, man. We were, the, we're that good. <laughs> you know. And well, then you're passing that knowledge on to other people who- yeah, Luckily, Maybe less, we're pretty vicious in our hot but, washes yeah, when we come sure. back. Um, yeah. And so you, you kind of take off that rank when you go in a room like this and you sit down and you talk about what went right, what went wrong, yeah. uh, how you can do it better next time, and then how you can pass those lessons on to the next guys that are coming in behind you because that's yeah. what you, you owe them. Um, so, so luckily, I think we're pretty, we're pretty good at that side of the house. Not as good as disseminating it to the rest of the military, although we're getting much better at it, or we were when I was leaving, um, but pretty good at doing it within our own units and getting it out there to the SEAL teams. And then I think we've got a lot better at getting that information out to the rest of the military as well. And, and same thing for them, for giving it to us. It works both ways. It seems, uh, you know, at once there got to be enough work for everyone, mm-hmm. let's say, that... Um, Inter-service yes. rivalry declined because they're just like, man, okay, you guys are going to come in and relieve us on this thing, and we're not we're not going to hold any secrets because no. um, some of our guys are going to have to come back and you know relieve you guys, and um, you know let's just make it you know kind of good and share as much knowledge as possible for everyone. Where like er- early on, so when I started working with some of the, the, the or- different organizations, it was pre nine eleven, right. And there silos was of knowledge, like silos of exactly mm-hmm. even even within certain organizations yeah. who had different areas of responsibility. Sure, it's like the and Russian dolls like, of knowledge. Yes, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you know that's very true. But uh, you're right. As soon as we were all in this together, uh, and it wasn't like hey, one mission popping up every three years yeah. or something like that uh, that you may or may not get to do. But and then you're super pissed together, if the other exactly. guys got it. Yeah, oh, exactly. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, 
but when we're all in it together and you're fighting next to a National Guard guy, you know, from Oregon who works in a hardware store most of the time, yeah. uh, and you're both out there and you're clearing a corner together in a street somewhere, um, I mean, you're in it with the rest of the military. Uh, and that, that was, I guess it was refreshing. It was, uh, I don't want to say eye-opening because it was just natural. To do. Oh yeah, it was just a very natural thing. You're both under fire together. Uh, you have a common goal, and you're going to help each other, and not just survive but prevail, um, and hopefully make each other better. Uh, so yeah, that part was because uh, that's a, a fond memory of my time in the teams is seeing those silos of knowledge uh, dissipate and yeah. make the whole organization, not just the SEAL teams, not just Army Special Forces, uh, but the military in general, stronger as a whole. That was uh, that was that was a, yeah, a good memory for my time in the teams. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. I mean, when I was there was another project and um, that I worked on that it was you know driven by Navy money, but it was all it was all stuff because one of the um, uh, the teams, but I guess we'll just say you know guys at Damnick they didn't have their own medical, so it was guys from the two four that always went out yep. deployed with them for for medical stuff, and and they were looking for a way to try and. Um, uh, reduce the amount of gear that they had to carry. So, um, and this guy's name, I can't remember, but he was a, he was a technical, technical guy, um, a civilian hire um, at Damneck that said, hey, we want to try and lighten up all the climbing gear. And so they brought me in to basically develop Why this. would they ask you for that? Because <laughs> um, I had unorthodox <laughs> ideas about um, stuff. Like, cause, you know, because a little bit of what would happen in the... Um, with climbing gears, like I was totally willing to take, you know, a lot of people say, look, I'm going to spend this much money. It has to last forever. And I'm like, if I'm going to spend this much money, it better only last one trip hmm. because that means it's light enough. Like, uh. so I was into um, single use sort of packs. Right. And there's a thing in extreme alpinism there where I'm burning the pack, which was oh, nice. like, it was the 75% of okay. a trip pack oh, wow. and it turned out like, no, I wanted to last the whole trip, not just half of it. You know? um, cause we like, cause we were always asking that question of how light is too light. And so we started working on this. Um, I worked with rock Thompson out at rock exotica to develop this whole light hall system because those guys were going out the door. If they're like, Hey, if we have a confined space or a high angle rescue where we have to raise a patient or lower a patient out of the situation, then, you know, they're, you know, using standard climbing gear and it's uh -huh. just stuff is just super fucking heavy. So we based everything around this 6.4 millimeter rope that I developed with blue water. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then all, all of the, the, the pulleys and swivels and attachment systems and, and self-locking devices that you could, um, build an inchworm and, and, and raise a patient or whatever. So but cool. it's just like, Hey, if this rope comes out of the package and gets used, it's done Yeah. because it's too, it is not durable. It will yeah. hold. Here are the specs you can put. You'll never get a, you know, at, at that point, the army, um, standards for safety for, you know, life support equipment was something like 10 to one. I'm so like, well, the best we can do is eight. And that's if you don't tie a knot in is eight to one. If, if you don't tie There's a knot in it, cuts mm. it because the knot cut, you know, yeah. you kind of figure eight knot is self cutting. Um, and so then we started doing the sewn loops on the ends of these ropes mm. and you didn't have to have the knot and then we could keep mm. it at an acceptable oh, nice. level, but it was all because those guys were going like, okay, here's an air force unit ostensibly mm -hmm. that's attached to a Navy unit right. to accomplish the same goal, which, you know, prior to that wasn't really a, you know, a thing. There wasn't that inter service interoperability, yeah. you know, uh, it didn't appear to me prior to 
you know, 9-11 and, and everything that came after. Yeah, well, certainly it hit uh, it hit full speed after after 9-11, that's for sure. But same thing, and it's cool to see that evolution both in the teams with the gear and on the, uh, uh, you know, the regular side of the house in that beforehand you had all this thick Cordura, you're going to last a lifetime, this backpack. Yeah. And then guys realized, well, even on the civilian side of the house too, like, well, backpack technology is changing and I have this really thick Cordura pack that, yeah, it's going to last a long time. It's super heavy, but now I want this other one anyway, because right. uh, it's yeah. maybe it's a little lighter, it's a little cooler, whatever. Um, but and then, you then get, we got to the same point where we're like, hey, let's get some gear that after deployment, we just get new stuff because exactly. it's super light. And, uh, and so it totally changed from that heavy duty Cordura stuff for everything that's going to last a lifetime to be, super light stuff that, hey, even after a mission, we can get a new something or other yeah. because we yeah. need to be super light because the enemy's mobile. The enemy is not weighed down by this big green radio, not weighed down by these plates and all this other stuff that we have to take with us. Um, they can move. Uh, and we need to be able to move in and out of windows, over walls, and all these sort of things. Uh, so let's lighten up a little bit. Let's get a little mobility back. There was a, I was at a um, military mountaineering symposium, it, and it might have been late 03, late 04. And you know there'd been a decent amount of experience, and, and um, there was a guy... Um, a colonel from 10th Mountain, um, which at, at that point wasn't, it was more mechanized than right. Mountain. Um, and this guy was, was talking about uh, situation it was, and it had to been Anaconda, I think. Mm -hmm. And he was watching the Predator feed and they were trying, he, he was talking about the amount of money they spent to try and get these four, two, these, this group of four dudes. And it was four dudes who like that had base plates for the mortars cemented in place in wow. all possible places you could land a helicopter because they'd been doing it for the Russians or to the Russians. Um, <laughs> they, they had, so they were all pin, you know, all indexed. And so all they had to do was move the tube and the, and the rounds. And so they had this fucking Damn. donkey and there's four of them. And, and they're just like, uh, yeah, they're, Every time they'd, they'd go, they'd set the tube on a on a plate. They'd fire four rounds, and they'd fucking load, load, put the tube back on the donkey, and then they'd go. And each guy had an AK and a few spare mags and a little bag of goat meat or whatever, and they could drink the local water without getting sick. And he was just like, um, he was looking at him. He said, I was watching the Predator feed, and I couldn't believe how fast those fuckers could move. And I was just like, well. you guys were studying... <laughs> the wrong you know the, mm -hmm. the wrong thing before you went in there right. i guess mm -hmm. it, it wasn't i mean there wasn't a ton of knowledge about what happened um you know between 1980 and yeah whenever there's they, a couple they, good books out left. there was a couple i uh, went uh, the bear went over the mountain yeah exactly was one of them yeah so i have um, both of those there was two written by a, okay. a russian i think um so i have them on my shelf i'm picturing them right now but i might use that about the uh the base plates in my fourth novel because i just did something similar okay and actually i have a 10th mountain unit nice. uh, in my fourth novel that gets uh gets ambushed and they uh and he's thinking as he's going through this thing how they're getting ambushed from the same positions that got the russians before them yep. and the british before the russians and he's just thinking he's, it's a thing that comes into this guy's head as he's doing this but i might bring in the the donkeys and the, and the mortar plates that's it, good i it, like that i, I mean might, it was i might take that it was super interesting and in the next presentation there was a uh, royal marine that was there at this this uh symposium as well and he was talking about like okay we early on we would you know they'd get dropped off by by helicopter and they were supposed to go from the you know where they got dropped off and move to another position so yeah. they're getting out of the helicopter somewhere between nine and ten thousand feet he said our packs laid weight legitimately weighed 110 pounds yeah and so they get out of the helicopter and they realize fuck the terrain is so fucked up 
that they couldn't move. Yeah. And so they ended up having to set up a sort of a base camp type position and then do day patrols out from there, never accomplished the task always. And then mm-hmm. always had to spend a lot of energy securing this position because they were going back to the same position every night yeah. because they went in too heavy yeah. thinking like, you know, but you're just like, Hey, look at the locals. They're not carrying anything. That's why they're able to move around. And you can't come, you, and this goes back to, and something we've talked about mm-hmm. on the podcast before and in, in different situations where, you know, I've been working on a thesis for a long time. Um, and it had, you know, it started in the mountains where th- there's a big difference between integrating and insulating, mm-hmm. right? Between yourself and the environment, your relationship to the yeah, environment. Right. And that's where the whole PCU came from is like, we're working on, with these hard shell systems beforehand where we're trying to insulate ourselves from the environment. And then, I mean, the, the whole idea of the constantly self-drying system was developed in Scotland uh-huh. where the weather's, com- you know, and the, you know, the, the sleet, rain, snow, whatever's blowing fucking yeah. sideways and it's getting, and it is coming at such a high rate of, sp- you know, the PSI forcing it through, uh-huh. it's defeating all of these hard shell systems. Okay. So you're going to get wet. But so they just said like, okay, we need a wind shell and we need insulation that's going to dry out. Okay. If you know you're going to get, you know, if, let's see, if you know you're going to dry out then who cares if you get wet? Yeah. And that's how the whole sort of soft shell thing kind of started. And it got integrated into this military system. But that was based on this idea of integrating it to the environment, not trying to insulate got ourselves it. from it. And the same thing happens with movement. Hmm. Is if you carry 110 pounds into the mountains, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. And you go oh, with 35 yeah. pounds. And this was always the... The thing is like... And it's an extreme alpinism. Um, but when I first started working with the... the um, the guys at green and in the in 1999 it was just like look you can't carry more than 35 percent of your body you know like this stuff that you're going with right now and these guys are going no we're out the door with 80 pounds and i'm like you're <laughs> then you're not then then you have to factor that in they go believe me we do and i said well things are going to change in the next decade because guys have we have figured out in the mountains that as soon as like the maximum you can carry is 35 you know without being too compromised is 35 percent of your body weight mm. Not that, and then you get to fifty percent, and I mean all of what the 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 extra weight costs in calories, in um and energy required to move that weight, all that math has been done, but no one was looking at it until we started like trying to figure out. I mean, John Bouchard did it. For, I mean, came he's the guy who said you know who coined the phrase "light is right," and and that and realized like okay when. And now you see dudes on top of McKinley, um, you know, in like stretch woven pants or whatever. Like, I mean, I remember being once on on top, Steve House and I were wearing wind shells with no waterproof component to them, wearing stretch woven pants, had gone up there with day packs from 14 and see these people in fucking one piece down suits, you know, trudging with these gigantic packs. Like, you guys went 14 one day, you guys up and down. Oh yeah! Wow, that's awesome. I've never slept on Denali. I've been to the top. I don't know seven or eight times. I've never slept Amazing. higher than fourteen. Amazing. Um, and some of the a couple of the trips that we've d- did with, um, so in 08 when I was there um, with Heath and Rob Reeves yeah. and Fro and, yeah. and and Bill Rapier and and, yeah. and that, that crew, um, we went. I mean, unfortunately, Rolo and I we we had eight guys. Um, 
as clients, it was a four to one ratio. And I was just like, okay, if we're going to go from 14 to the top, I can't do four to one. I have to do two to one. And so we're basically going to draw straws um, to see, because, you know, okay, we have a weather window. They say it's going to be good. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take two guys to the top today. I'm going to come down. I'm going to rest the day and I'm going to take the next two guys the day after that. And Heath was super pissed because he got like the second day and he was afraid he wasn't going to make it. Oh yeah. And so the, the second, so that trip I went from four, I think the first day that we went, that we had Fro and, and, um, and, and Bill with us, um, uh, uh, was 17 hours round trip. And then when I went with Heath and a guy named Dave Wright, um, we're, we're on my rope the, the second time. Uh, we got it done in like 15 and a half hours. That's so awesome. I remember hearing about all these trips and I'm super, super jealous because I wasn't at a team that, that was doing those. And, uh, cause I, and I'm like, come on, I grew up doing this stuff. I'm like, you know, I idolize this person and my friends that like just learned like yesterday how to uh, put on a pack. And, like, how, how to put on a pack exactly. or whatever. Now they're going to do this. I'm like, ah. But uh, I think Bro did all of them with you, didn't he? Like yeah. most of them. Fro- Almost every t- so um he's great he uh heath and rob reeves they they kind of had this plan to try and use the mountaineering thing like the basically the seven summits as a navy recruiting tool and so they were i mean they were extraordinary scammers and i say that with the greatest (laughs) respect of just like okay there's money out there we just need to figure out how to tap into it in order to do these cool trips um so and, and and for whatever it was, a two-year two period, I guess, Scott Moore, who's uh-huh. like super into climbing, yep. um, and I've met him a long time before, was running that show. And so he was just like sign off on nice. everything. And th- there was trips. I mean, there was some- You did El Cap, you got Aconcagua, right? You did Denali. Um, yes, uh, Aconcagua trip, I didn't make it on. So that was um, Vince and Rolo and, and uh, uh, Bean Bowers. Um, but all the dudes, you know, rat and I mean that mm-hmm. whole crew, they were on that trip. There was a trip to Chile that there's some incredible video of because, and, and Adam Brown was like a, like he would try anything that oh, guys, yeah. and we had it here for some ice climbing trips, Colorado, um, and the Chile trip that was, uh, Vince and Rolo and Bean again. And, um, and you know, Adam could ski. But, you know, they, they, he was looking at this, yeah. this video that Vince had and they played it at the memorial that was just fucking hilarious. And him just like, fuck it, I'll try it. You know, nice. going down some insane slope that, oh, you know, kind yeah. of bad conditions had no just like fucking tomahawking down this thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, and, oh, yeah. and then just like comes up at the, at the bottom like, woo, that yeah. was fucking amazing. Like, oh, you yeah. did it wrong, you, but kind of right. Craters yeah, yeah. in the snow. And, and so, yeah, there was a period there where we had like, I think those guys were some of the most capable cold weather high altitude guys yeah. um you know in any service at that point I'm sure. um, because of uh the the stuff that they'd been you know they'd been out with us and and did and and the thing is it's like everybody can suck it up for two days three days yeah. whatever but when you take a guy out for two weeks put him in that environment for a two-week period or yeah. or whatever and they have to you know look after themselves and and keep thinking you know playing chess far ahead um like man, if I don't dry my boots out tonight, yeah. then you know all of the things that you learn by being yeah, out yeah. in the mountains. I mean that that was a, 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 I mean a really fucking cool period. And I got to say, like one of the most, the the saddest, like most down periods of my entire life was going back to the Extortion Seventeen yeah. Memorial and and you know hanging with with guys who you know were in those yeah. teams that were that had survived and, right. and chef saying shit like, I'm just tired of fucking being a pallbearer, man. Yeah. And, um, 
and Jeff Swanson, another good friend of mine who, uh, you know, was when we got back there for that, you know, we met him, he, you know, we met him at the tattoo shop where he was getting every oh. name of every one of those guys tattooed oh, wow. around his biceps. Okay. And just a lot of dudes. Yeah. No, I was, uh, I was in Iraq at the time. I remember I got, uh, cause it was vampire hours, which is typically what you do over there. Um, yeah. working at night, sleep a little bit during the day. And if you're in a leadership position, you have to get up cause most of the rest of the military is doing stuff during <laughs> On the a day. Different schedule. Yeah. Exactly. So, but I remember it was early in the morning, like seven in the morning and, uh, our operations, uh, guy knocked on my door and I was the task unit commander at the time. And I knew it wasn't, wasn't good if someone's waking me up at oh. this time of day, uh, when it's supposed to be my, my like couple hours of sleep. Uh, and yeah, sure enough, that was, uh, extortion one seven. So just threw on my flip flops and head over to the talk and, uh, started getting some info. That's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. And, and really, after and you've that, been with all those guys on the mountain. Like that's amazing. Like you, you, you yeah. kind of like, like hunting and, uh, mountaineering, like you form some, uh, very close relationships with people because it's so primal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, other than combat, it's the, uh, you know, the most primal thing you can do. Uh, with another human is going to these environments. Um, and then you had that experience with those guys. So, and you, and you see each other at, you know, yeah. we can all front for a while, but pretty soon there's, if there's enough stress piled on enough in environmental circumstances, fatigue, et cetera, you know, our true character yep. comes out. Exactly. And so we, you know, we got to learn each other. We got to see each other and, you know, s- truly see and, and to, to have to trust each other yep. in, in those kind of things. And, and, you know, pre nine 11, I, one of my, the things I thought was really important about, you know, the climbing as training for uh, soldiers is just like, look, this is one of the few things you can do in peacetime that re- where your decisions have a direct effect on, you know, whether you live or die. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be cognizant. You you, you can put yourself in like the, these very deep situations yeah. um, and, and learn whether you're you are, you know, fiery or faint or whatever. Like if you've, it's a, it's a way to test yourself, um, without, um, you know, you know, having to do the thing that you're training to do necessarily. And, oh, yeah. and, and I think that the value in a sense, um, of that type of training, you know, in, in that particular context went away, you know, after guys were going over and seeing a lot of combat and being in that and, and making those decisions and, 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 and operating in those environments, the, you know, that, that part went away, but the, but the managing, you know, the, the hygiene part, the managing yourself in these difficult environments, um, and, and taking care of your nutrition, um, managing your sleep, doing all of these things that we learn from either climbing or the fitness programs afterwards were, 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 um, were still absolutely relevant and, you know, are to this day. And, and, uh, it was, uh, yeah, I'm pretty proud to have been part of that. Yeah, no, it's and amazing. Even just sit here and talk about, it, I, reminisce yeah. about some of those guys. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And it's and what's really cool about that being outside and doing these sorts of things is that your decisions have consequences, not just for you, but for the other people in your group as well, especially if you're a leader or if you're not a leader and you see someone making a decision, uh, well, now you have to learn to speak up in that group dynamic outside where you know that someone else is making a decision that might not be the right way to go here. Now you have to, uh, especially as a young person when you're, when you're learning more about yourself and you're, and you're in this group dynamic, well, now you have to be a leader yourself and say something. And cognizant of rank it's also in that for, yeah, in, military. In situation yeah. in the military environment but not only i was going to actually say it's profoundly relevant outside of a military environment oh yeah life it's in the general the fact that you got to learn that is is 
is good, but people don't understand like how leadership works is from the bottom up, right? Like in order for somebody to lead somebody, they need to listen to the people that they're leading. And today in this age, we don't have that structure outside of the military. Like nobody ever is like taken in and apprenticed on how structure works so that a team, a group of individuals that need to accomplish something should have a dynamic so that they can succeed. And when it doesn't succeed, how to hot wash all of the bad ideas out. And I feel like no matter what the given, nothing like specific, but you can kind of feel the environment in this country today is that the hot wash is bullshit. Like nobody is actually yeah. talking about the concepts and bad ideas that don't work and moving on. They're just flailing around acting like they're leaders when like there's only so many chefs that can be in the kitchen. Oh, it's yeah, it's that's scary in that sense, mm. um, which is why I love that my daughter, who's 14, mm. is naturally gravitating to these outdoor awesome. uh, pursuits. And yeah. uh, she's on a backpacking trip right now in the Tetons. Uh, so she's out there and she's doing this decision making and being in those exact kind of situations we just talked about um, yeah. and having to manage that, do those risk assessments uh, for all the different decisions that are going to be made out there based on weather and what they're doing and who the group dynamic is and experience and everything else going on uh, and then add something in uh, some some wilderness trauma medicine in there as well learn a little bit of that but uh just getting out there and i think if i didn't go into the military i mean i was i was hardwired to mm -hmm. do something with a weapon from a very early age and to serve my country in uniform um but if something in the other path would have been hey river guide i'm uh yeah. mountaineering i am uh ski patrol i am uh, doing things outside and living that kind of a life um because yeah. i just naturally gravitate towards that too and sometimes in the military though that can you can uh kind of run it you can butt heads with uh with some people that are not wired that way this is sure. why special operations is such a great place for those of us that that do think are kind of are free thinkers and uh want to figure out how to do things better how to do things faster um uh, and how to pass those on how to make the organization better as a whole leave our mark on it and then move on Mm -hmm. um, which I think is important as well um, because a lot of guys, as we talked about, guys have a hard time leaving that behind and finding that next mission in life, finding that next purpose in life um, because the military is going to be there for seven years if you do it for seven, 10, 12, 15, 20, 25, maybe 30 if you really stretch it out. Mm -hmm. And then now what are you going to do? There's always a next, and, like, uh, no yeah, matter what. Yeah. But it's really that foundation. So whatever, I mean, everything, it doesn't have to be the military either. Yeah. It's just in life in general, what you've done in the past uh, forms the foundation of who you are moving forward. You don't have to live back there and it's not just the military, um, but military is just my experience. So I use that as the example of guys not being able to let that go, but it can be anything. In life. I, and I think we talk about that quite often. That subject comes up like the subject is general. It's like how to reinvent yourself. And I don't think it matters what profession you do, but how uh, veterans are um, generally talked about or portrayed, I think is different than my experience with most veterans. I think it's the, the downtrodden thing and broken person right. that comes out of this system is more rare. It's just like portrayed that way. And one of, the, I think, you know, maybe one of the really good parts about the subject that you're writing about is to show that actually that is not the case. And in which case, the second part of that statement slash question is, at what point did you know and how long did you have something lined up? Or like, how did you transition? Like, what was the thing from going, yeah. hey, full blown, I mean, 14, you know, bone arrows, ropes, gear, all the thing, the full career, sniping, and then coming out and going, author? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was all it was all from natural it was a natural transition because I knew that I wanted to do both mm-hmm. of those things very early. So I found out about seals when I was seven, knew I was going to do that, and just focused on that path. And then, <laughs> but a lot of the information I got back then, especially when I got to be about ten years old, eleven years old, when I started to read the same kind from of books, books as my parents, I got a lot of that information from novels, from yeah. works of fiction, from yeah. uh, Clancy and J.C. Pollock and mm-hmm. Mark Olden and, and all these guys in the '80s who had protagonists that had jo- that had backgrounds that I wanted one day. And back then mm. they had Vietnam experience, either with the CIA or usually right. special forces, sometimes SEALs like with uh, with Tom Clancy's character, John Clark. But uh, but that's where I got a lot of my information. And I enjoyed that so much as there's no other, there's other than movies. So let's just was, say that Without Remorse is kind of a one-off and uh, b- book of his. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it turns out that a lot of um, special operations guys that I've come across <laughs> that's their favorite Clancy book yeah. right like, right and they probably a lot of those guys probably it, it might be their only Clancy book because it came out right about the time like you know early 90s where they would have then gone into the military 95 yeah. 96 97 um, so the time timing works on that one like today I doubt like if we talked to some younger guys they'd be like well it's gonna be a movie soon so it's coming out in November there's gonna be a, a film finally no on shit. it yeah no shit so that might does anybody know how people. hard it actually is to make a 22 caliber conversion for a 1911 run reliable uh, I, I, know. I have the conversion <laughs> kit, but I've never even put it in. Yeah, but so. you badmouthed High Point. And I was going to make sure. That, <laughs> I was going to make sure that you didn't badmouth Caltech and their twenty-two LR handgun. I have, I have nothing to say. It's about. like the space I've, I've gun. Not, it's the fucking most ridiculous thing ever. But for some reason, I really Caltech like it. does make the coolest shotgun of all. It time. does look it's cool. A good point. I've yeah, never yeah. shot it, but it uh, it does look cool. It put some thought into that. I, I know it, that's no for sure. it holds yeah. up against the five seven, that FN five seven. Oh, I don't know that one either. The, uh, that uh, the ridiculous. Oh, just to look like space gun looking. Yeah, wise. Space, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it even has like a fiber optic fucking sight oh, nice. it's the most ridiculous it looks like it literally out. looks like if a bb gun company was like let's make our bb gun look real yeah. that's what it would look like i'm gonna check i'm gonna, I'm gonna google that later which is are, something i couldn't have done in the 80s uh, yeah right uh, yeah, so, exactly. so i was reading those books uh and then seeing some of those movies but there wasn't an internet to just occupy all of your time and to give True. you an excuse to keep researching something well, which is great because i don't know how i would have done in that environment you had to go do it right like you had to like eventually step out of the like um i'm imagining what this is like and these people are telling me it's like this and you go i'm gonna go find out for myself that i mean that's one of the great things about any endeavor uh, sport like endurance sports climbing any of these things is kind of and i'm doing it right now i'm like man i'm really interested in something very strange and there's no way to know what it's like Hmm. no one can tell you no, they, they can, can kind of explain it, but it's like the emotional thing. You're just going to get, they're going to tell you what they think that you want to hear. Hmm. When in reality, like you put or up what a, their technical observations yeah. are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, removed from the, the feeling of like, well, I know the whole experience learning something like whatever it's kiteboarding or what are these extreme sports where or if you, or somebody so asks like, cause somebody, you could, somebody could say, Hey, what's it like to run a hundred miles? Yeah. I'm like, Okay, how do you explain that? What's it like to be, you know, nine days in, you know, or nine days up a wall in the Himalayas in the yeah. winter, and wow. there's nobody else there, or to be the only two or the only three guys in the Alaska range in the winter time? You know, what's that like? You know, get your like, shoes. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I don't know what. How do you say? I mean, right. I don't know. Or I mean, I have a, a, a really dear friend who um, was uh, part of that organization at Fort Belvoir. Uh-huh. And so he would go by himself to a bunch of places. Uh-huh. And it's like, hey, man, what was it like being by yourself in Mali for six months? Right. 
he's you know and like the you know the answer the stock answer is kind of like well i learned how to play the guitar <laughs> like because he you know because like if i want to yeah. have conversations with people it's yeah. integrating with these like local musicians uh, and i yeah. thought cool. what a fucking trip like Amazing. like but you can't explain right. that thing and and no right. amount of internet stuff yeah no, exactly yeah but i think the written word is different mm. in that way because like even if we're um, because you will like you know that if you pick up a 500 page book mm-hmm. that you're in it for a while oh yeah like this is going to be an investment this is and oh, yeah. I, and there are th- there's the ability to transmit detail in a in a in a literary work mm-hmm. that is not possible in the short attention span even the long form article in Harper's or something mm-hmm. like that you know you it just doesn't you can't do it justice Mm -hmm. where I think you can Mm -hmm. get so much closer. And especially if, and if people are able to learn, like, you know, like you said, some of the information that you were getting back in the day is from novels. And, and, and I think a lot of people think that everything in the novel is fiction. And I'm like, well, it can't be because it's a human being writing it. Therefore there has to be some, you know, yeah, reference points, some level of human experience that is informing this writing. And if you, I mean, I mean, Stephen Hunter is a good example. What he is like a film critic for the Baltimore yeah. Got the you Pulitzer know, Prize. paper or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, reading, going through and looking at through the lists of authors in the back of the book that yeah, were yeah. influenced or hearing you talk on, on, on the Rogan podcast about the people. And I'm just like, I have read every one of that guy's oh, books. Nice. I have read it because my whole thing was like, I mean, I used to travel all the time and, or I'd go on these climbing expeditions and I'd be like, you know, I'd pack. And then at the last minute I'd be like in the airport yeah. and I'm going to like, we're going to be there for three fucking months. <laughs> I, I don't yep. know if I have enough books and I don't know if I'm going to, you know, I'm going with two other guys or one other guy, you know, I mean, having Scott back, he's hand me, um, a copy of uh, one of Robert Stone's books on one of those trips. Like that fucking changed my life. Which ones are those? I have to look that up. Um, well, let, let's see. Hall of Mirrors was huh. like the, was I, I believe his first um, book. I think Outer Bridge Reach was the one that he had handed me at the time, um, which had uh, the, the 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 phrase the passage. This guy was talking about the abridgment of hope, Ooh, I and like I was that. just like, "Holy fuck! This is a and it and it was in an incredibly fucked up situation where this came where this phrase was uttered." Um, but there comes a time, you know, on some climbs or some trips where you know that is what happens (laughs) you know you're you're like well this guy's not gonna live Mm, you know we did everything we could you know whatever or or but but if you can and and i always took pride you know if i thank my parents for anything it was them giving me the capacity probably unknowingly so on their part to learn from anything yeah and so i would Mm. i have this penchant for trashy spy novels that i pick up in airports awesome i love to hear that (laughs) i mean that's like that was the thing you know yeah i'll read the literature i'll you know i'll read the the philosophers i have done it yes but i can but there, there are um there have been moments in some of those of some of those mm-hmm. you know trash yeah. and spinal type books were just like holy shit as a universal concept i can apply this to other things in my life mm-hmm. if i can just extract it separate it out of the context of Fiction. you know 
or or whatever an outsider's view of this piece of you know airport fiction yeah. if you will actually i love this in this in uh in here you reference uh and it's not a trashy spy novel but it's uh Uh-oh. from dune oh from, yeah. From yeah, dune. Yeah, yeah. yeah um yeah it's it's um uh, that attitude of the knife that's it yep the attitude of the knife yeah right uh right there yeah the attitude of the knife cut off what's incomplete and say now it is finished for it has ended there that's pretty cool. That is pretty, yeah. I mean, conceptually, okay, it's a sci-fi novel, yeah. but it's one of the great philosophy books of all time, and oh, yeah. um, and and just to, I mean, that that one influenced me. Uh, uh, I mean, that particular idea right there. It's what allowed me to go climbing in the way that I did because I was willing to use the knife. Because if it's like, hey, I'm in a relationship with someone, they're holding me back. They want me to be like them. They want to control me, slow yeah. me down, suffocate me, whatever. I have a, I have three ex-wives for a fucking reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is not the relationship podcast. <laughs> it can start. Or, or it could be. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm in a really good relationship right now. Uh, yeah, you know, I can learn yeah, yeah. some lessons. But just like, look, I'm, I'm willing... To, to to do what I wanted to do, I was willing to give up other things. And it turns out that we as human beings can't have it all. Hmm. And so sometimes something has to go. Well, I like what you talk about when you talk about freedom and risk and uh, and how those things are, are intertwined. Uh, and, are, uh, and I was thinking about it in terms of what's going on in our country today, and not just the last few months, mm. but just in general, the way we're going and how comfortable we are and how dependent we are on the government. And uh, that freedom and risk and the way you talk about it is the way that people need to conceptualize it, not just the freedom to say what you want to say, mm-hmm. um, but being able to have that freedom to risk. And it's just, it's, it, there's a lot of parallels to what we're dealing with. Today. And, and not to have someone tell you what is acceptable for you to do with your life mm-hmm. in the sense of like, okay, and, and just like, oh, you can't do the work that is forbidden because it's too, you might die, you might get hurt. And mm-hmm. I can understand parents saying that to their children mm-hmm. because they want to see their children grow into adults. Right. Right. But there is a, a, a certain amount of risk with, you know, going out in the mountains and learning mm-hmm. these wilderness kind of things. Yeah. Um, you know, we were just down in an area in Southern Utah and uh, earlier this year, there were some people there and I don't know if they thought, you know, there, there's this, um, somebody had come up with the concept recently of the fact that people think national parks are like amusement parks. Yeah. Like, you know, where do they, when do they let the bears out? You know, or where do the bears <laughs> sleep at night or whatever the, that the, the idea. criticism, like, like the, uh, to Yellowstone, the Yellowstone like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to make the bears come out more frequently. We wasted our weekend. We didn't see any, and bears. we didn't see any bears or, so you know, crazy. or something like that. But then, but then when you go on your own autonomously into that park environment, that wilderness environment and, and see like, and there was a, you know, down South in the, uh, in the swell, there was a flash flood earlier this mm. year and, and the kid got killed and maybe it was two of them. Yeah. Um, because they, they, you know, they're just like, they don't know that this is an uncontrolled situation yeah. where Mother Nature has the last say always. Oh, yeah. And so there is some risk in doing, you know, any of Anything. these things. And and that's part of the attraction in a way is to try and measure oneself, you know, against or with or in the context of. And, um and I think it, you know, these things should absolutely be permitted. And the idea of like, okay, people gravitate to Moab 
um, you, I mean, especially like you know people like you know Trevor, Trevor Andrew, jumping off the cliff. Oh yeah, because, uh, yes. because of the the, the BLM <laughs> you know land situation where it's wide open, where it is forbidden in national parks, and the right. national park law is bullshit. It's like forbidden to you know so it's air, deliver a package, deliver <laughs> deliver packages you know by but, air or yeah. whatever, which is I guess essentially what you're doing if you consider yourself it's a so package. crazy, yeah. But, but it's like no, this should be you're allowing climbing, which is equally as dangerous. Yeah. In statistically, you know, maybe not per capita, but um, but but more injuries. You know, maybe it's just even just in concept, like it, like you, yeah. like you don't need to run statistics behind something. Like in order to have an experience, something has to be risked. And if if we all admit, like no matter what feature of life we want to argue or what avenue is worth pursuing life is experience it's about feeling something like that is the only reason that's the only meaning behind anything and you get to decide what you want to feel or you don't because somebody deems that too risky that that's a really weird from yeah i mean like let's just call him a remf um, yeah, you, know, you know in a way because that's where all that is how a lot of the regulation you know it is driven in you know okay how do we use the land well Okay, let's just use, keep continue the base jumping thing and go like, well, fucking base jumping is the has the least environmental impact. Yeah, I mean, because even as a pilot, if you impact your fertilizer, yeah. you're doing good for the environment. <laughs> right. Shit grows out of the ground, you know, like, right. you're like back from whence you came. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or it's giving I, back. I, it's it's a, the new black. It's a exactly. It's a bit facetious <laughs> in a in a way to say that, but um, but the activity, a lot of the activities that you know, at least coming you know, as an individual user, like a, a very um, tactile experiencer of the environment. I mean, I would say that, you know, abs, you know, apart from various base camps, I've had, you know, visited in the Himalayas where people left their trash or you go to mm-hmm. Everest and there's fucking thousands of oxygen bottles. And wow. I just wish they'd, you know, I just want to still want to do the first, you know, I want to like somebody to come up to the South call and, you know, see a, a, an empty oxygen, an empty, tank like that that says nitrous oxide on the outside just so like be the first guy to you know do a whip it on everything <laughs> no no to, yeah to use nitrous to get to the top instead of oxygen anyway um, but, but 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 so so climbing let's say has even you know, has less impact than like even if you go to moab and you go like oh yeah the chalk on all the holds mm. on potash road it's fucking pisses me off but it's way better than going out to like you know, slick rock or fins and things and whatever, and seeing all the black marks from the, Trucks you know, the the, the, the the razor tires or the Jeep mm-hmm. tires or whatever but, and stuff. But that and that is miles apart from how disappointing it is to walk down the street right now and pick <laughs> and see ten disposable masks, yeah, because of safety. So gross. Like, or see them in the fucking desert in Moab or Bryce Canyon. Uh, oh, did you, you see that? Saw that. Oh, yeah, and I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? We're, we're like, I'm, this... I'm just like, what did it? Okay, I can see maybe it blew off of your rearview mirror on your razor. Like yeah. that's the the most positive, <laughs> you know, yeah. accident and, and reason for it yeah. to be, you know, where I saw a couple of things. Oh, so tough. I mean, I keep going north. I just got to keep going north, maybe. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so, so how do you escape? Because you're like, this is like, it feels like a time um, where you, you need to remove yourself from something. And I don't like, I, I say that kind of, you know, half acidly and also to excuse my own, um, uh, I don't want to deal with the attitude. Um, 
but uh, mostly it's like the people that I don't want to deal with. And, and, you know, not to like, what is really strange is how split ideas have become. Like, you want to go to the military. Oh, you're that kind of person. What do you mean? Like, I want to experience what it is to, you know, what it is to serve and protect somebody. That That's like, that's been a profession for so long. And it's been written about as this esteem that humans can raise themselves to. Um, even Even though we don't know much, we don't really know that much about ancient Greeks. But we do know through fiction and Homer like the emotional states of human beings that were warriors. And that has been something that humans have always sought after. And now it's thought of as something lowly or or like in our culture is trying to turn it to something lowly when, when it should like an opinion of somebody that wants to go try something or experience something, there should be no opinions of it. It's somebody's experience. Yeah. Well, it shouldn't, you don't, need someone to tell you if you just if you just appeared here with uh with no history mm-hmm. no background you wouldn't need someone to tell you that oh you know what you need to, you need to eat to stay <laughs> alive and you need to protect this gift called life like those are the two things sure. that if you just magically appeared right here that you would do naturally you'd protect yourself mm-hmm. and then maybe a family uh but and you would eat something so mm-hmm. you would hunt and you would protect yourself and that grows into providing for the tribe and protecting the tribe like those things that's our base level like that's the those are the two things that we need to do to survive as individuals and as tribes mm-hmm. as a species so for me those are just very natural things wait so if we so <clears throat> now i would hunt I, tofu I, and i would <laughs> give it to people for free come on hang, hang on hang on you just just took the Sorry. wind out of my thing i was just gonna say like i need to eat i'll i'll grow something but how what do i eat between now and then and how are you going to protect <laughs> you know, it from it, the like, things that are going to take the things squirrel. that you're growing it, yeah <laughs> so if i don't like, hunt then i can't eat you know in the interim like the three months for the crops whatever the crops i'm growing i don't even know because i just got here like right. what's viable in this particular environment like I, it, the, some of the man when you take it down to a base level like yeah. that jack that is um well, that's remarkably effective. Uh, <laughs> the, the protection uh, thing is yeah, a really good, that's a good theme. Well, yeah, and it's the self-defense side right. of the house too. Like right. you don't need yeah. someone to tell you what, if you just suddenly appeared here, you wouldn't need the government to tell you that you're allowed to protect yourself. Like right. you would just naturally protect protect yourself if you're attacked, if you all of a sudden just appeared somewhere. I don't think you've because met that's a, a millennial. <laughs> I really think you're out of touch. I'm <laughs> guessing that if they just appeared somewhere and they were attacked, like they wouldn't no. be like, oh, I'm, hmm, am I allowed to protect myself? or i'm starving here and i'm I'm surrounded by this beautiful area and there's some there's water here and there's a squirrel over there and i'm just gonna sit here and do nothing and just die so do you think like your instincts are very vibrant and they're very real and and maybe that, that that's a large byproduct of your you know growing up and your influence i do think that humanistically that there are natural instincts to eat to drive these drivers that are like chemical processes in our body uh, adrenaline helps us defend ourselves whatever but they are eroding like the the sensitivity that we have to our environment is almost all but gone like people can't take their shoes off and walk across the parking lot without saying ouch that like we are so insulated from animals like from being animals even though we are animals Right. That's why are, I think it's so important to go outside to do we, these things. It's so important yeah. for me to to take my kids hunting because yes. it uh, once we get away from all these devices that yeah. uh, that are so distracting because uh, a lot of them don't 
you can't use them or in influential places that, I go at as well um, and get out there and teach them a responsibility mm-hmm. um, and they they just learn they oh I can take care of myself out here I can provide for my camp my family I can be responsible with this firearm whatever it may be same thing going down a river like in a lot of these river canyons phones don't work so you're not going to for a second say oh hold on one second and that's i'm talking to myself now mm-hmm. as a parent say sure. oh just hold on one second i just got to finish this text or i got to get back to this person well you're not doing that in a river canyon and that's why i love every year we go out and mm-hmm. spend at least a week on a river um, because we're together as a family there's no distractions we're in a beautiful area and uh there's there's not that electronic leash and there's no sure. i just have to do this real quick just hold on one second because mm-hmm. i don't want my but kids memories of me to be that but it's not just and it's not just a leash in fact it's 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 like it it, it, it is that i mean i'm tied i'm tied to it in some way by by um what can i just say i am habit yeah <laughs> <laughs> as a reference that michael will only michael will get um uh, but um but but there's there's that sort of automatic behavior and i was kind of monitoring myself this morning actually because i had not been on social media for four days and i oh, nice. you know got on last you know got on last night because somebody had had sent a text to me hey i just sent you this thing and i was like oh, man, yeah. i shouldn't fucking do this i shouldn't fucking do this. i know myself too well i shouldn't god damn it i did it and then <laughs> they get you they're good at getting you I, I get, no i'm good at getting myself yeah no, it's, yeah, it's, totally. it's really what it is so there's there's the habit there's the like uh, of that but it's uh, so i'm so i'm leashed to it in that way but it is a direct pipeline um influencing behavior in a way like i understand like i see Okay, I can. Oh, I like. Oh, this tickles. I like how this feels. Yeah. You know, yeah. or you know, that's fun. You know, that's funny, or that pisses me off, or that's yeah. this, that's that, and and so we are. It, it's a, it's a, it's a me- handheld mechanism that we can. It it, 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 that it is possible to use to stimulate certain behavior, um, or or, or to to steer certain behavior within ourselves. But I don't think any of us. I think we have a lot of trouble doing the, um, the, the, the handling. It's, it's more of a reverse thing. Like it is handling us. I know. I know. It's tough. It's time for me. I look at it as my storefront. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Yep, it's like if I had this general store and people were coming in, like, that's it. Like that's the modern version of that storefront as an author who yeah. does not have an actual storefront. This allows me to interact with customers. Yes. So I look at it in that, in that respect, like that's sure. my way to engage with my customer and I want to write. I love writing and in order to continue to do that and build this readership. Well, I need to engage with people and yeah. I genuinely want to thank everyone that, sure. that uh, made this possible because I wanted to do it my whole life. I've made this transition and I've only made it because people were interested in the book because Simon and Schuster took mm. a risk on me yeah. and then people read the book taking a risk as well and then told a friend and then grew this readership so it's a way for me to say thank you as well so i look sure. at it um in those terms and rather than but just, you do hey, but I, like you i can see in you you see the risk because you know you oh, have yeah. to remove yourself to it and this is kind of the funny thing about the you know the, the current situation about you know man there there is a virus and it could potentially kill some people and it has and it there is some risk in going outside there always has been there's always been some risk um and we're being told what the real risk is and nobody is telling us what this risk is that we're all entitled to which is this virtual relationship with the world there is a risk inherent to how um news reports things how they get your attention there's risk in that and they're doing a lot of damage to our psychology and our culture and our communities 
but nobody's talking about that risk. We're told to put on a mask and that that will save us. Um, and, and like I heard this today and I like I fucking died. So I have to repeat it. But that it's not that a mask does not help. It's not that it's not a, a good thing. It's a fairly like inexpensive way to mitigate some kind of risk. But the equivalent is is that it's too late. It's like showing up to, you know, a, a birthday party and offering fucking condoms to the couple. And being like, protect yourself. The baby shower. Baby sh- whatever. Yeah, like, I mean, okay, yeah, the birthday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got, see, it. I, I got it. Birthday party is like a couple of years yeah. late. But, um, <laughs> no, it was a Barnaby's thing today. Like yeah. The, the kind of, I, I, yes. <laughs> like, oops. We weren't hardcore enough up front. And yeah. now we're going to do, and it's just, it's, I don't know. Didn't you all see this with the fucking TSA? Oh, for sure, yeah. Like, yeah. we're going to institute this, you know, airport security thing, but um, those buildings are already on the fucking ground. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and my um, Nikes don't support that kind of firepower, so you quit making me take them off. Like, it just, I know, it, it's like theatrics, but... Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and today, being, <laughs> with the day we're recording this, is tax day, the new tax day. Yeah, yeah And uh, right. there's a great thing that I saw this morning, just talking about taxes and talking about, hey, how much do you think you pay in taxes? And people just think, oh, how much, what back at am I in? Is it 20%, 30, yeah. 40, what, high 40s, whatever it is? And they're like, well, okay, that's about half what you pay, because yeah. you know there's a tax on this when you right. get your license for your animal when you get exactly. what all these other taxes make up the other half or more yeah. of what you're paying each and every year so right. it is absolutely insane and they don't give it back like we when pay taxes on we pay property tax so i paid sales tax when we bought these microphones and this recording <laughs> gear yeah um and then every year the state of utah is charging us a proper a, a personal yeah. property tax because we are using this ostensibly it's the property of the llc so we're using it to make money and so they want a piece of that as well Wait, oh yeah can we show and, them that we don't make any money doing this and then we wouldn't have to pay? Oh, you that, can't, I guess you can show that, but you've already paid taxes on when you purchase totally. this stuff as well. So. Right, so there's the sales tax, but then yeah. there's the annual use tax. Yeah. And then, um, no, Michael, we can't because we do not want to talk to that person <laughs> yeah. um, who would come to do the assessment. Yeah, right. Uh, it's like, pretty It's pretty brutal. But there, there's some the tax I was looking at this morning was one where it was for a city list pretend let's say it's denver yeah um right. and because they were it was for the olympics that were coming and so as part of this olympics they were going to ta- put this tax on and guess what's still there let's see the olympic yeah, did, tax guess what's away. not there yeah the olympics yeah once you start paying they're like well we need that now now yeah. we're now we're dependent on it as bureaucrats or whoever yeah i, I mean horrible. and this is this is i this is a really good point. I think I heard Joe Rogan actually say it, um, and I think it. I think it was a good point. It's not that I'm against it. Like I want to support the the society that I want to be a part of. The hard part is that I. It's hard to be a part of this society today. It's hard to think like I'm paying into something that's getting better. Because it doesn't seem like it's getting better, and you see all the waste and the fraud sure. and everything else, and it's yeah. just it's just crazy. You see the and one of the crazier ones is the is the uh, the <laughs> when the person says they want to uh, take away a billion dollars from the police, yet they have. <laughs> Armed security paid for by the taxpayer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that one gets me. There was a beautiful so editorial <laughs> written by the uh, Milwaukee police chief today mm. about, hey, you want to defund the police? Well, let me break down, you know, what that's actually going to look like. And is that it, still being said? I'm sorry, I'm a little uh, bit. Behind. Oh, it's happening. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Is it really? Oh yeah. So I was part of my whole like shut off thing. I quit. Paying you quit attention. paying attention. Well, it didn't. Just because you stopped paying attention, <laughs> didn't mean it didn't it. stop it from happening. Yeah. That was my hypothesis. I was like, maybe if I don't look, it'll go away. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I tried bliss. Yeah. You know, I That's tried right. quitting climbing because I was tired of my friends getting killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They still kept. On. They still kept going climbing and getting killed, and so I went back and went climbing again for a little bit. But um, the the did you. Look at that mm-hmm. Joe New yep. piece that I, I've oh, been yeah. working on. A, I woke up this morning and I had that um, the the first track off Combat Rock in my head. <laughs> no, you're right. This is a public service announcement with guitars, and you know, this Joe's singing about um, uh, No, you're right. All three of them, and I just kind of went. Th- I did, so I w- woke up. I drank some coffee. Actually, I started writing it while I was still in bed on my fucking phone because I know Michael writes on his phone. I'm like, it's possible apparently, uh, so I should I do, can't it. do it. And um, and some of the best stuff, like he'll just like at stoplights. I think really? like, sometimes, right? yeah. Sometimes yeah. I pull over. I, I can't do it. Oh I, man! It's and I and but I just started working on this thing and I and and um, realized recently. If, so I've been kind of watching New York City and 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 the soaring crime rates and murder rates. Mm. Like the, uh, just like the Monday of this week, the number uh, I can't remember if it's seventeen murders or something. Yeah. And they, um, like so crime is you know we're talking about defunding the police crime rates are soaring and i was like this is exactly what i would do if i was a bureaucrat i would tell the cops to show up to 50 percent of the calls and then i would tell them like and when you get to the 50 percent of those calls you should maybe do something 50 percent of the time mm-hmm. and then we'll let that go on for long enough that the people will be begging us for more police and harder yeah and so when you start talking about defund the police you're gonna get i my thesis is that you're gonna get the fucking opposite eventually maybe Uh, but i think a lot of these people are saying that they they just want to get elected hoping the mob votes them back into their position of power um and that they're getting controlled by this mob both in person and mm -hmm. virtually on twitter and these platforms where there's no editing there's no editor to field away the crazy people uh, and everyone has this voice and can directly touch their politician in mass to control uh what their actions so that they can get elected again, keep their power, keep their pension, get on the yeah. boards they're going to sit on afterward. So it's it's pretty disgusting. It's really disgusting, but I'm uh, an optimist. <laughs> I like it. I like and, it. And, uh, we'll and, see. And this is... I'm moving to the mountains and making... I mean, I have enough ammo. I have it, enough I, weapons. I, I, the, fam- <laughs> the family is trained. But I'm going to get an elevated position and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to observe. So yeah, here's... my sniper side. Here's, Jack, <laughs> I, I just, you know, um, be my litmus paper on this one. Um, and when I say, you know, I never like to admit being an optimist, but sometimes I am. And especially mm-hmm. after really bad shit has happened, mm-hmm. I like to be that guy who goes, Hey, there's a silver lining. And you know what the silver lining of cancel culture is, mm. is the creation of a new culture by all the motherfuckers who got canceled. I think you're right. And yeah. because those are the people who, who didn't allow themselves to be their opinions or their words to be suppressed by the fucking mob. So they said it, they got ushered, you know, into Mm -hmm. the wings and said, your services are no longer required. Um, And they and and those people will eventually come around. And it's the unthinking mob that um, maybe they're kind of like lemmings. That's the little critter that ran towards the edge of the cliff and couldn't fly. Right. Okay. so um, (laughs) I think that's where the mob is headed. Oh, yeah. And the thinkers, the speakers, 
the speak your minders, the people who can play chess and think like two, three, four, five moves ahead and imagine it, um, what, what could possibly happen, those are the people who are going to hang back because, well, who got told to hang back and they're going to start their own new thing. Yep. And maybe, maybe from an elevated position. That's it. Yeah, that's good to. Yeah, you want to improve your fighting position at, at every turn. At every, but uh, you know who else is part of that group? There are people that were part of this cancel culture and got canceled anyway. Yes, because yes. yeah. they were a part of the mob the before until they got canceled yeah. themselves, and now they see the value in this freedom and really what what that means. Yeah. And then now new alliances are being formed around that, which is which is amazing to see. So I think you're onto something there. It might take a little while, sure. but I think you are onto something that there is a whole group that is growing as more and more people get canceled, people that never thought they would because they were with the mob. Yeah. Well, you know what? That is bolstering the ranks of this whole group over here on the side that's eventually going to grow or the mob uh, switched or and i think a lot of the reason that the mob that you know we just got to call it the mob because i can't i gotta be a generalist in that regard um has is gaining momentum is because of the fact that people aren't willing to investigate like beyond the headline i read the headline i read the first paragraph or if you go to like the hill.com or any of these you know or insider um any of those there it's like you got the headline and then you've got like five bullet points before you get to the main body. People never read beyond the five bullet points and that is what is informing their behavior. Mm-hmm. And if if I look at, like so that, you know, when I told you today, hey, just, uh, you know, if you can't find the address, just make your way to the memorial right mm-hmm. here on the corner. Um, it, it, and what happened, okay, so those, the, the, the police officers involved in that particular shooting, you know, were exonerated. Like, there's no reason to press charges. They acted according to policy and blah, 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 blah. And people are, are super upset. But it's like, okay, here's a, um, and, but does, and yes, it was a young 23 year old male. Again, he was apparently just turning his life around and his family loved him and, you know, et cetera. But, um, he was a convicted felon. He was in possession of a weapon that a convicted felon is no long is not, you know, firearm, which a convicted felon is, is not permitted to, to possess. He committed an armed robbery, which is why the police were called in the first place with said weapon. So now we're looking at, you know, a couple of different, you know, uh, you know, two different felonies. There was an exchange with, you know, the, poli- the police showed up and, you know, t- whatever X number of times he was told, you know, drop the weapon and, you know, please, you know, obey whatever, and then didn't. And then, you know, and ran and ran and ran, you know, I kind of make the argument that the cops were tired of chasing him. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, that would be the things like you guys need more fitness. You know, you make better decisions when, you know, when, when your heart rate's not 170. Um, and you don't need to shoot 34 rounds. Um, if you're pretty sure of, uh, be based on your training that you can actually call your shots when the, um, when the trigger is depressed, but that's me. Uh, anyway, so, you know, they chased him and, and shot him and, and multiple times and, you know, put the threat down. He never, he kept, when it, when he dropped the gun, he stopped to pick it up, you know, da, 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 da. Um, but nobody's looking into that part. It's just that, you know, it was unfair. He was running away. Da, da, da. He was no threat. I'm like, well, he was found with the shit that he robbed from the guy with the, you know, before the guy's ID and the money and whatever. Yeah, but you have anyway. a lot of details and this will come back to something that I think is fun. I mean, this is, um, but you just need to, but the reason that you can have you, the details are available. You just have to 
Go beyond the headlines. Uh, Yes, and this is what I was going to say. It's like you you mentioned one scattered way of getting information that I think that is causing a lot of harm to people. There's a way that I realized literally today when I was on Twitter and I went to the like news search Mm -hmm. and I saw the the headline that's like blah blast blast dot 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 and you're like oh that looks intriguing you know somebody said something or somebody did something and you click on it and I didn't even click on the article I clicked to see people's commentary on the article Ugh. who also probably didn't read it. Don't waste too much time there. No, I, well, I know it, what I did was I go, oh my God, my brain really wants to make an opinion based off of not, I have no idea what this actually said or Ugh. what actually happened. It's so brutal. But in my brain, I think that I did because people are very opinionated right here, but they probably didn't. So now we're like three levels removed from actual facts, which brings me back to something that's interesting. To write fiction, you have to know details that are so real that you can sell the fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So there's almost, this is like reality is stranger than fiction because our reality is based on less facts than your books that are fictional. Like when you wrote about <laughs> Mozambique, the first thing I thought was like, fuck, he had to have been there. That's right. That's right. I had to go there. But people are writing about opinions about things that are actually life and death, not a character that might hopefully be in a movie one yeah, day. Thank you. Social and media. they haven't even been there. Therefore, our fiction is more real than our reality. And yeah, our reality can be more fiction. Right. Uh-huh. That's the exactly. other. That's the other side of that. Um, no, it is a crazy. It is a crazy time that you have to take such active measures um, to inform yourself, and mm-hmm. then you have to. Even before you do that, though, you need this foundation of logic, and you need principles, and you need character mm-hmm. in order to decipher that information in uh, a way that's uh, appropriate and positive and uh, in a way that uh, allows you to then uh, influence your family, your circle, however big that is, whether it's 100 million, 20 million, 1 million, 20, 5, whatever that may be. But that foundation of logic uh, needs to be there. That character needs to be there. Otherwise, you're just jumping all over the place, clicking things, liking things, forming opinions, saying something, then moving over here. No, you have to have this foundation. You have to know what you stand for. And what is that? Is that freedom? Do you stand for that? Uh, Or do you stand for government control and safety on one side? What what is it? You have to start from there. And I don't think that most people out there making these comments uh, have that foundation. They don't even know where they stand, and that's why the mob is so powerful because mm-hmm. it can take that majority that is not grounded in this foundation of principle and character and understand this understanding of history, yeah. um, and the mob can can mold them in the direction that they want them to go. I mean, it's a there's a great passage in from 1984 that I heard Isaiah Washington, who's an actor, mm. um, he read it the other day, and just his voice is so powerful oh, yeah. when he reads it. It's it's absolutely incredible, um, and it is. It's it's amazing how much of that is coming true, and it's not just 1984. It's just bureaucracy and control mm. in general. Yes, um, and uh, yeah, but you have to have that foundation if you're going to comment, on which is not fiction. And but most an, people don't. A really interesting thing here is is like okay, these pe- pe- you know people are commenting, influencing, acting, behaving, getting in the streets, you know, getting in physical confrontations with, you know, government officials, law enforcement, whatever. Um, and if, and without 
uh, having done any due diligence, which let's is say. internal, but in a way. But if you look at like, okay, I admire um, guys in the special operations community, and these the, the, you know certain missions are revered, you know, because you know what based on what knowledge we have of them. But do you, but but nobody's what people probably fail to consider is like the amount of intelligence gathering, the amount of yeah. details that were had to be yeah. ascertained before even having a conversation about this sure. before even like okay you know my friend he's in Mali for you know to to, to to you know look at that situation he's there for six fucking months you know or or yeah. he's in in the in the horn for a while with some other guy you know and and, and going around and developing relationships to try sure. and understand what cannot be understood from distance right um before anything happens same thing going to the mountains it's like okay what's this mountain is this a maritime range is an interior range because that's going to inform the what the snow conditions are and what the time of year is going to be possible what aspect slopes is is it northern hemisphere is it southern hemisphere you know all of this information goes into making these kinds of decisions and i see nobody gathering any fucking information before making decisions that are going to fundamentally transform our society it gets a little bit um, more daunting than that because they don't even have information about themselves. And I think yeah. that is like one of the primary problems is people have not done internal investigation to figure out where they're where they're at and what their brain is doing and how to like actually put I mean, uh, we can get rid of free will. I can put myself in an environment and become something better as long as I recognize what better is. Um, and, and what my worst self is. Um, there's this but I think that self-knowledge is something that does come from having military experience. Uh, the even yeah. even at a two-year sort of or four-year enlistment, it's you know, just you're going to ex- come out completely transformed. But it's just or experience. You're understand, well, or you're going to understand the importance of the team. Sure. And that's the other part. Yeah. It's the importance of uh, being Group a part. Group integrity. Yeah, being a part of that team and being living and serving for something greater than yourself or having done that for a little bit uh, to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to provide, uh, to give back to the country before you go out and maybe do something on your own. Maybe you mm-hmm. want to get out of government service and go do something on your own. Well, you gave that time. You understand how, how people that came before you from the inception of this country mm-hmm. up until today gave you the freedom to be able to do your two years, your four years, your six years, then get out and start a gym or... Yep. Do whatever else you want to do in this country and not have that dictated by the position that you were born into uh, or your family's last name. Uh, So you have that freedom in this country. And there are very few places in the world where that is true. For sure. Um, And also being able to travel, uh, whether you're going to these countries as as a mountaineer, as a rock climber, whatever else, or you're going in the military and you're seeing it. But world travel and seeing that, Mm -hmm. wow, look at most of the world does not have the options (laughs) and opportunities I do. And you know why I have that is because people sacrificed from the inception of this country up until today. They gave their lives so that I could have these options and opportunities and now I'm jacking it up for the next generation so it's kind of a wake-up call so it is that that service is I think it is important I think we would be a stronger country if everybody did a couple years I Um, totally agree there's no I don't don't think there's any there's there's Uh, no doubt in my mind about that we would have different leadership too like if the requirement to pick the leaders was based off service first like if you in order to take something you actually had to give first it would change something about us probably there's a lot of taking and there's not a lot of giving (laughs) in fact there's a lot of demanding entitlement and that's it yeah and and that really does change somebody and i think 
uh, like from my own perspective, I had an experience less than 48 hours ago where I may may not have drinking a substance that can make you quite ill, actually. Like there's, you know. You should stop doing that. I mean, Robitussin, I swear to God, it's, <laughs> you know, in excess, it's better bad, ways bad well, for you. So, you know, <laughs> I felt fine and my compatriot did not feel fine and he regurgitated and purged all of the ailment <laughs> out and felt okay. And I made a, a quick move from my position and I immediately regretted it. Like nausea set in. I was immediately sick and I started planning my sickness. Okay, I'm going to throw up like this. I'm going to like, uh, okay, this is so bad. How's it going to come on? What's it going to be? And I started projecting my illness until I realized that my brain was making me sick. My mind was telling me that I was sick, but my body was not sick. And we are so good at letting our brains tell us what we feel like that we forget to actually understand how we feel about something. And it all went away. Nausea was gone because I had recognized that my mind is actually what's poisoning us. But we are so convinced of our mind's ability to be correct. Everybody thinks that their thoughts are the right thoughts and they are not. In fact, if you say out loud, my thoughts are the right thoughts, you're arrogant. Everybody knows that, so no one will really say that. But we hide it with our insidious way of like, no, no, come to my thing. It's the right way. My idea, my political party, my my concept is correct, right? It's correct because logic and this and that and the other. But really, anybody could say at any point, my feelings are the most important thing to me. Everybody should say that. And if they did out loud and they would affirm that like how I feel is very important you also recognize by saying to me that other person's feelings are important to them and and that's being like that's having it's kind of a given I've got I've been for me it's like yeah that part that makes, part's a given it totally is but then you, <laughs> what, but it, you tune into that you tune into why is that it ability. so obvious but well because the, and yet not because the mind is very good at <laughs> convincing you that it's the way to go but if we tune into the part that is like a personal like i feel like i practice this way in my life about it being in the mountains about being in nature about being like protecting my environment about protecting my family protecting our way of life you know generally um that's a feeling it's not a thought if we try to rationalize it we have to go oh but that does people harm and you go right but they got in the way of what we think is important what's sacred to us which is our way of life like it's not that we shouldn't think we should definitely develop ideas and concepts and logic and all of these things as a tool but to realize that that tool can be turned on us guns are dangerous when they're pointed in the wrong directions and our minds are pointed in the wrong direction yeah, apparently not as dangerous as automobiles or baseball bats or fists <laughs> or, or feet for sure yeah. or, or opinion <laughs> Oh, even yeah. reading those statistics again, man. <laughs> I know it. I know it. But yeah, it's, but it's a, it's crazy when there are a, there's a group that wants to fundamentally transform our society and take away those freedoms that sure. so many people died to give us. Right. So they gave us the freedom to also be able to take those away, mm -hmm. take those freedoms away, uh, or try to. 
Yeah. And so that's what we're seeing today. And so for me, that's uh, you know that's the, the the scariest part of all this is that we're turning over to the next generation a country where there are not those options and opportunities that we had that our, our yeah. grandparents who fought in World War II gave to us, uh, that their parents fought in World War One gave to them. Yeah. Um, they go tracing it back to to 1776 and before that uh, that their gen- that generations past gave yeah. us. And so that's the part that when you don't understand history you don't uh think about it maybe you just read it and then someone anyway that's the saddest part of all this is that all that loss all that sacrifice um is getting squandered by a generation who hasn't been tested um that doesn't even really know what they're doing sure and they're taking away those freedoms that were given to them by people who died so that they could live and have the options and opportunities we do so for me that's the toughest part of all this and uh what what can i do well uh as an individual i can um i can write some of these things into my novels Mm -hmm. um i can talk about them on these different platforms that are available to me today in a way that i think is appropriate um and i can influence my kids uh and raise them in a way that they understand that history and that's really what i can do as an individual uh other people can do more they can run for office and Mm -hmm. they know they and we can vote we can all do that um so there are things that we that we can do and some people some people really go all in and want to i can't imagine going into politics so for me it's that uh the 20 years that i gave in the seal teams like for me i'm like okay check (laughs) that's good (laughs) yeah i want to write i want to write now that's that's those are the things i want to do but other people they move on and they go into this realm called politics which to me i don't even i don't know how they do it but thank goodness that someone wants to but gosh i may be drawing a lot of the wrong people these days it seems Um, gosh i don't know but i don't know how you do it because you're attacked all day every day like for me you know people think you're a seal yeah you're very tough you know you got thick skin and all that stuff but you know we're all human uh but man in politics you're attacked all day every day some true some not i mean i don't know how they deal with that i don't either i mean like um, and I haven't been watching. I don't know if there's been a primary in Virginia at this yet, but you know, since Rob Jones is running for Congress yeah. back there, and his uh, uh, Marine um, okay got hit by an IED and and uh, um, had done, has done a re- incredible things. I think I've mentioned him once on the podcast before, saying I wouldn't want to run against that dude because you know he told he's never walk again. Like I met him when he sent me a photo. Um, wearing a salvation t-shirt, you know, completing his wow. first marathon after the docs at the VA said, you're never going to walk again. Amazing. And then he went on after that to, um, he won gold in the Paralympics in London um, as part of a two person uh, rowing team with a girl who was a Chernobyl baby. Um, and then he rode his bicycle from Maine to, um, to Southern California, no finished in San Diego through the fucking winter. Wow. And, um, I mean, the guy's a, he's a, he's a total stud. Um, uh, just, um, had a, had a baby and, uh, married a girl who's also another Paralympian. She's, uh, f- from Great Britain. She just got her citizenship in the wow. U S I think. And I'm just like, man, this is like the total, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a fucked up a version of the American dream because of the IED. Yeah. But it really does prove that the, you know, the opportunities here are absolutely, you know, yeah. wide open in a way. Um, but I don't, I don't know how he you know like like you say you put yourself you put yourself into public office or you put yourself in the running and you get elected to public office and you are just um 
you know, the recipient of scathing attacks. Yeah. I mean, think um, about it like from before you get elected yeah. till, you know, years after you probably returned to, you know, private yeah. life. It's crazy. Let's just pick a date, like say before 2000, let's right. say. Um, yeah. You could read an article that was written about you, a letter to the editor in a paper that was written about you that's nasty. Yeah. That's one. Um, yeah. You know, maybe there's two, maybe there's three. Okay. There's not one million. Two million things come negative comments, articles coming in, bombarding you with direct access uh, because it's your platform that they're making. It's not like you have to go and open the New York Times or go to the Chronicle or wherever your paper is and flip to the page or look. Yeah, it's right there in in your your hand all day, every day. (laughs) Like it is a con. You're just you're just like got your hands up. You're a boxer. You're just taking hits all day, every day. And you throw out throw the jab out there or whatever else, and what and you're getting hit again on this side, and then and you're fighting more than one person like it's tough i mean maybe that's that's what this is useful for is it shows the vulnerability of like how technology has shown us an outdated model of information actually by making too much information available too much useless information not enough good information there's too much noise not enough signal therefore when there's not enough signal we don't know what to do and we tend to to i don't know fall apart until we can build back something that's better or the response was like yours and then you know, mine for the last couple of days is to disengage. Sure. It's just like, man, I need to like ring yeah. out my head for a little bit here. Yes. Go on the river for a yeah. week or whatever. And, th- and because I, I mean, there was a period there. I just, it's just like, fuck it. Let's just stop doing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not helpful like, anymore. Even though like my service is not yours and it's not a politician and mine isn't to my, mine is to a very small community of people that I know that depend on me to develop myself so they can develop themselves. It's a reflection. Yeah. And I know if like, if I'm not developing, I'm going to let some people down, whether that's just close family or even my stepdaughter, whatever it is, people need to continue to progress themselves. And if you just take that minute, small feature and you do that and everybody does that, (laughs) it changes everything because people are worried about their very tangible, close communities that they want to succeed and they'll do what it takes. They'll protect them because they're sacred. They're, they're special to them. Um, that your, your concepts, you can feel, and I think this is a, Probably what genuinely attracted me to to your writing is that although it's fiction, although it's like hyperbole and it's like a little bit of fantasy, and you know there's some there's some there's some revenge porn going on in there about some unfor- <laughs> very therapeutic. It is, <laughs> yes. but there's also this genuine love for an article, the Declaration, uh, and the Constitution that that there is like a, a, a gratitude to what this country has given you and that theme runs through there and you see it respected you also see it remarked on the things that you think are dangers like the the things that you suspect will break the thing that you think is special you're you're pointing them out to obvious to everybody this is the behavior this is what the person has probably as a profession here's how they'll dismantle what is sacred to me um and and in which case i don't think that it's fiction i think that you know i you know it, it could be a documentary. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a passage that people have started to type out uh, online here from the preface that I wrote mm. in let's see in August sixth of 2017 in Park City, Utah, right up the hill, mm. and uh, I wrote. Uh, as a free people, keeping federal power in check is something that should be of concern to us all. The fundamental value of freedom is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. We are citizens, not subjects, and we must stay ever vigilant that we remain so. 
So that was 2017, and you know it could have been 1960, it could have been you know yeah. 1850, whatever. It's classic. Um, but uh, you know, that's it's hard not to put yourself uh, when you're writing something like or anything uh, a part of yourself into it because it's such a personal experience. Sure. So even though it's fiction, uh, and that was the preface where I kind of just set the tone, uh, and the preface is not fiction, of course, but uh, it, it sets the tone for the rest of the novel and really gives you insight into to why it was written, uh, where your mind is as you're writing it, what the themes are. Mm for what the reader is about to embark upon. Um, so uh, it's, it's a very therapeutic thing to do, and it would be hard not to insert something in there that is personal to you because I don't think it would ring true to a reader. Yeah. Um, and that authenticity piece is so, it's an overused word, I know, but there's really not a better one for it. Um, and, and that's really what resonates with people uh, and has resonated with the with publisher and with, with readers. But you have, you have to have that personal side in there uh, to connect with people. And in this case, it's uh, I put a lot of myself into these things, even though they are fiction, uh, a lot of me is in there. And I think that's what's really made them successful to this point. So. Well, I, I think you're, I think you're like genuine service has ser- like, I think uh, what I hope is that this is a launching point for you and you can become a prolific writer that people will, you know, will be influenced by like the people that you're talking about, the Tom Clancy's, all these, like, yeah, that, but they have changed the world with words. I mean, that is the power of the written word is it really remakes the landscape. Like it can, it has the power to do that if it is the right word. So I look forward to anything that you write. I've really enjoyed like all of it. Oh, it's thank it's you. really fun. Thank you. Well, and this, and uh, you got you too. Like, so in, we were talking earlier and uh, I think it was 2000, I want to say 2006, seven, eight through nine timeframe when I was printing off all the, uh, the articles that, that you wrote there that had like the, I think a lot of them had one word titles. So I still have them in a box somewhere, <laughs> but I printed them all off cause they weren't available in a book anywhere. So I printed them all off. I used the, uh, my work, work computer cause, uh, you know, printer paper, whatever, maybe I didn't have enough at home and there's a lot of ink in some of those photos that would come out with those as well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so then, what are you printing out? Exactly. So I had all those cause I wanted to print it out cause me, I need something. I need to read. I need a, yeah. a physical copy like a, of something. A, a tactile yep. sort of feed. Yep. Yeah. So I could get something from them when I read them on the computer, yeah. but I got something else from them when I printed them and read them and had them Have physically them. Uh, part of me. So those those are amazing. And I, I you know, can't thank you enough for putting all your heart and soul into those things because you, obviously, when you read, if people go and find those and read them, um, like you haven't written anything that has not been like all of you. It's you're a committed, whether it's a sentence or it's uh, two pages or it's a book like that is all of you and it is raw and it is authentic. And that is why people gravitate to you, to your writing um, and look at you as, uh, as inspiration. And, and uh, so those are incredible. So I still have them to this day. They're in a box, they're printed out and I hope they end up in a book one day. Um, you're, you're making me slightly uncomfortable um, <laughs> with that because I look back at that. I, I mean, you're you're right. It, it, I I will I will stay up all night working on a three piece Instagram post because now I post in threes or whatever. Like because it, because it is important. I think mm-hmm. the words are important. Yeah. I think if I don't, if I'm not putting, if it's just a casual thing dashed off, it it's as meaningless to me as it should be to anybody who reads it. Um, and uh after the you know explosion of that whole project mm-hmm. um i did uh I, my attorney was very helpful and i did leave with all of my copyrighted material um some of which one of these pieces Ooh, um 
that you'll go away with today um, is anthology. We we started making these zines a couple years ago, and and some of the work is original and new. Some of it's um, been repurposed from from that stuff. Uh, um, But what I look back, you know, when I read your, you know, I see how prolific you have been. If that was in 2017, let's say you started working on the first. The terminal list of the first book um, in 2016. Uh, no, a little earlier. So little my last earlier. year in the in the military. So okay, it was good like, for you. Um, yeah, I knew I was getting out. And when you're in the military, when you drop those papers, yeah, you all of a sudden you go in this different pile. And yeah. your job is now to get out of this huge bureaucracy. So yeah. I had some time on my hands, and so it was time to start writing because I knew what I was going to do next. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what was my passion, my next mission, and uh, and so I got to, to spend some time. Well, let's just say it's three, it even if it's 2015. Let's yep. just say it's it's you know three books published in. In five years, still which is which is to me is astonishing. And when I look back at those those you know one word pieces, you know you know some Mm -hmm. of those things that are five hundred words, a thousand words, maybe two thousand for a lengthy one. If I was especially worked up or whatever, um, or the vodka was good, (laughs) uh, um, or it was treating me well. Anyway, the (laughs) the um, is that those are the things that were like the pressure release valve that kept me from doing long form work. Mm. And when um, I made refuge, it was like, okay, I've been, I've been rehearsing this. Um, I mean, it's how I used social media for a long time was to rehearse the marriage of the image with the words. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, I don't think there are more than 5,000 words in that book. Um, it's a 200 page book. Um, but they, each one is honed down to the sharpest point I could make it. And, um, but it also took to, I started like, I decided, okay, I'm done rehearsing. This is going to be a thing. I think I have a way to do it, which was um, to start putting it together. When I thought I had a draft, I'd, I'd send it to blurb and I'd, you know, have them make me a, you know, a soft cover version nice. of it. And I come back and then I could, like you were saying, you're holding in your hands, yeah. like, man, I can look at it on the screen all I want. And it's, mm-hmm. and it was, and it's a completely different thing. And then I get it in my hand and okay, this is like a two pound weight sitting on my lap. It's three pounds sitting on my lap. And I can, there's a tactile sensation of yeah. turning that page. And, and I would go, fuck, not up to standard. And I think I did that four times mm-hmm. before we were ready to actually go to press. And then, um, uh, which I'd spent a bunch of time trying to, you know, get the digital printer to make it look and feel the way I wanted. And we couldn't. Uh, and I'm like, fuck now it's going to, now we're talking real money. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes. Now it goes. And cause yeah. then you put it on the, you know, you put it on a litho printer and like mm. start seeing that the way those, that comes through and it's uh. like, oh, fuck, this is why. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's, you know, maybe this, uh, you know, some, a modern person could get the same feeling off a phone. I don't think so. But for me, I need that weight, mm-hmm. that feeling. And to, um, and I, and I know what it, t- like it, the admiration I have for three books in five years is, uh, I mean, I feel like we're doing a fucking total group hug here ah. on this shit, but, but just like to, to realize, like, I know what goes into that i mean yeah. i know what it lo- it took to write extreme alpinism and i had someone fucking help um and, and you know these days when i last year I, uh, jim martin who was the my you know co- co-author on that um you know we sat down and talked about it because we want to try and do another project together um of some kind we yeah. don't know what it is um and so we were talking about extreme alpinism and he said look you're when you were writing about your own experiences 
your tone, your, the, your use of words, your active voice was prominent. But as soon as you started to try and teach knowledge hmm. or try and demonstrate stuff, he said, you just fell into like the wordy college professor who obfuscates to fill the fucking hour of the oh, class he's supposed to be teaching. And he said, so my only contribution was to make your voice in the teaching segments of the book more active. Interesting. And I will, you know, and that's, you know, 20 years ago now, and I will forever be indebted to him to, be, to like to, because he taught me how to write. But now, and I've been talking with some friends lately, and somebody uh, very dear to me recently says, said like, I've been sensing that for about the last, you know, eight, 10 months, you need a mission. Hmm. And we all need a mission. We all need a mission, you know, and for my sins, they gave me That's one it right there. <laughs> that, was, that was my next line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm not going to cut myself up in a hotel. I might fuck, never know, <laughs> but, but uh, That's right. um, the, uh, one of the most, you know, in different interviews or podcasts that I've listened to, to with you is like having, um, a relation, like the relationship with Brad Thor there and although he didn't you know he just said i'm not gonna help you don't fucking call yeah. me until it's done or whatever yeah. but knowing that there's some avenue of you know a guide like the once you have the the thing to take to the place yeah. that there's a guide available and someone who you respect who's writing you respect like you know when you probably read lines of lucerne that first yeah. th you know that first time like damn this is okay and if you believe that you can do it and you have a, a, a guide that could take that, um, uh, you know, to, to, to tell someone, hey, there's a torch being carried up the road here. You ought to look at it. Yeah. Um, that's, um, let me just say that I might ask the same thing of you. All right. And if you would be willing. I would be honored to do it for you. I, I have a treatment that I've been working on for 20 fucking years of the airport book because it was a long, because it was a, a, a goal of mine to be able to walk through an airport someday and see something that I wrote nice. on one of those fucking shelves, regardless of, you know, just the, you yeah. know, the, the, okay. Trashy spy novel airport, you know, the flight fair, whatever yeah, yeah. you call it. Um, uh, it's a crazy feeling when you see that. Uh, I bet it Especially is. Especially the first time. The first time I saw it was in oh, Denver. No, and, yeah, uh, where were you? Yeah, Denver, going to uh, down to uh, to Fort Collins, to uh, Colorado Springs, to do a signing. And it was uh, early on in the book tour, so to walking through the airport in uh, in Denver. And there it was, right there. It was kind of crazy. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. Fucking did you buy but, a copy? <laughs> I don't think I did. I, I, don't, I don't think I did. I think I took a picture, snapped a picture, and sent it to my publicist. Um, but uh, but I should have. So uh, that, that first, the, for the first one, I mean, obviously now, like we were talking about before there's a lot of tools available for an author for sort of um creating mm -hmm. awareness for a book and marketing a book these yep. days um and you uh, clear you work hard at it on your own like and, and i think i heard you at some point saying hey this is part of my job now yeah you gotta to, take ownership of it you gotta otherwise if it doesn't turn out the way you want then you're just gonna be complaining that other people 
didn't work hard or enough or do the right things for you. That sounds familiar. Uh, Sounds like it's a... Or you can take ownership. (laughs) You can take ownership. You can look at other, what other people are doing, not just in your space, but other spaces as well. Yeah. And, uh, and take some lessons learned, apply them to what you're doing as you move forward to, in my case, expand the readership, but it can be any profession uh, in order to to get you to the next level or get you where you want to go or just to continue to grow. Wouldn't matter what your goal is. Um, And so there was still, it was that uh, still sort of a traditional publishing model where you did do some signings. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's very helpful. I think in my case, Uh, I wanted a traditional publishing house. I wanted a big New York publisher. I wanted Emily Bessler specifically as my editor and publisher. Okay. And she is. Um, And so it's crazy how all that came together. How did did you determine her? Because she's in the back of all of Vince Flynn's novels and Brad (sighs) Thor's novels. Um, She is there. She's thanked in every one of those as an amazing publisher, an amazing editor. Uh, So I said, okay, uh, that's mine. Okay. This is the, this is the path I'm walking. And and so she, she's amazing. She's absolutely incredible. Yeah. We, yeah, she's, uh, uh, so she has her own imprint of Simon and Schuster. So uh, I didn't know this till a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, but there's Simon and Schuster, and then there's all these imprints uh, underneath. Simon, yeah. Underneath, yep. That publish different kinds of books or specialize in different things that are all oh. under the Simon and Schuster umbrella. Yeah. Uh, and there's one called Atria, and then Atria has imprints. And Emily Bessler books is one of those. Okay. And so she she found Vince Flynn and uh, and published Vince Flynn, and he passed away sadly a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, his writings continued by Kyle Mills, yep. uh, who does an incredible incredible job. He, he lives does in, lives a in very Jackson, good job, and you know actually, him. Yeah. He's a he's a great great guy. Yeah. Uh, and and she's Brad Thor's um, editor as well and publisher. So uh, I knew when when Brad Thor offered to let them know. And what he thought was that yeah. they were just going to read a couple, a page maybe, and then call him back and say, Hey, what do you want me to tell this guy? Yeah. And he was just going to say, yeah, just tell, him, tell him good luck. Just tell him good luck and to keep yeah. going. And that's what he thought was going to happen. And instead she read it. She loved it. She called Brad and said, Hey Brad, uh, you know, you're kind of our, you're, anyway, what do you want me to do? And he <laughs> said, uh, I want you to publish Jack. And uh, that was so cool. So cool. Outrageous. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So I'm always indebted to him. The third novel's uh, dedicated to him because uh, he really made this this uh, post-military life possible. But I had to have the product. Yeah. It had to be good. And then for someone to take a risk and actually introduce me to Brad Thor on their own, I never asked. Uh, a friend who was in the SEAL teams with me said, hey, I heard you're writing a novel. So-and-so told me you're writing a novel. And yeah. I said, yeah, I'm working, working on it right now. And they said... Hey, would you like to talk to Brad Thor? And I said, what? Absolutely. And, and he said, well, yeah, I know him. I sat next to him at a, uh, at one of these seal fundraising events and I helped him out with a, a character, some character stuff, seal stuff uh, yeah. on a couple of his novels. And I said, wow. But in order for that to happen, that really, like I had to have been yeah. looked at by that person anyway, as a good operator. Yeah. SEAL teams. Otherwise, he wasn't exactly. going to take that risk. He wasn't going to going to risk his relationship with Brad by recommending someone he didn't respect or who had a bad reputation in the teams or whatever. So all those things had to to come together. So yeah, maybe there, there's some luck, luck sprinkled in there, maybe. But you know, but, but luck may, is the residue may, of preparation, is what an old CEO used to tell me. An yeah. old commanding officer. Luck is the residue of preparation. This is why we always have to be prepared. We have to be ready to go to war. And in the case of publishing, I have to be ready for that opportunity. So the product has to be there. So when that door is cracked a tiny bit, then I can kick it the rest of the way in. Yeah. Um, so all those things have to line up. It's not just the, oh, somebody has a relationship and yeah. they're going to introduce you to somebody. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe I should write a I got really got to write this book now. No, you have to be all in on that product. It has to be good. 
just like your reputation in the team. It's that like, that's your currency in the teams. Uh, you have to be a good operator for yourself, for the guy to your right and left, the team as a whole, like all of that stuff all comes into play and it all came into play in writing as well. And to, to, I mean, the respect that you have in the teams though is, is, um, it, it, it's, we were talking briefly when you first walked in about some, you know, various, um, mutual acquaintances and people who have, who were really successful, highly respected operators who are the ones who are doing really well after, after they separated from the military. Yeah. And, um, and then there were other guys and you're just like, well, of course that dude failed because it was like <laughs> a piece of shit. You know, nobody yeah. dug his program back then. And, right. And you know, every profession has them. Oh, oh yeah. And uh, we all, we, we both carried the same knife. That was hilarious. So I, you pulled out your, uh, Bill rapier designed blade and i have the exact same one in my pocket i love it Amtac blades which awesome. is yeah yeah bill and i we've done a lot of good training together and oh, he's great. um and i was looking for I, I i used to own a number of um of mad dog knives nice um and i don't know if you're familiar with kevin mcclung he developed you know a, a knife that was it was the first his blade the the, the attack the seal attack um was the the first knife that was ever given a sole source justification oh, um, by the yeah, navy back in the day then he was unable as a one-man shop essentially to produce enough of them i mean i still have one of the originals that a friend of mine kirk Ooh. johnstad gave me um and i had a number of uh of Mad Dog Knives, um, which uh, he made me, like I, I told him at one point, um, hey, I'm going to do this uh, this TV commercial down in Antarctica. We're going to be climbing frozen icebergs. Um, and so here's the situation. I'm going to be climbing on this iceberg. Let's say I've got I've got a PFD hidden under my my uh, my outside clothes. Huh. Um, I'll be wearing a dry suit under, you know, very thin dry suit under that. I said, but if I fall, you know, something happens, I go in the water, I need to get, and this was back in the day, we were still using leashes on our ice tools. This is, I need a way to um, get myself, to cut myself away from the ice tools and to cut myself away from the rope because that's the shit that's going to, you know, that's going to tangle me up and keep me, wow. you know, in, in, in the water. And so he made me this wombat, this beautiful neck knife that I could wear on the outside. And um, I still have, and I still have that one, but there was a couple of others that, um, you know, in the divorce that Lisa got, uh. she's more adept <laughs> with a blade than I ever was anyway. Um, nice. she's done the work. I mean, she's studied yeah. Colleen and that kind yeah. of thing. And, uh, and so I was looking, I was like, I wonder whatever happened to Mad Dog if he's still making blades. Cause I'd like to buy one. And you know, the, the whole thing being a, you know, Mensa level intellect and a genius and a somewhat confrontational personality, no matter the quality of the product you make, <laughs> um, you're going to be shit at business. Yeah. You might want to get a front man. Yeah. You might need to, <laughs> you might need to get someone who CEO can do the, do the books. So yeah, yeah. apparently mad dog went, you know, went away and I was like, fuck, I, you know, I fixed blade and was talking a little bit with Adam. Uh, Did he make at, holsters uh, you know, ever? He made the gun glove. Oh okay, yeah, I think I had one early on. He was he was the f he made the first Kydex holster. Yeah, I had, I, that's why I brought it to my first platoon. I had one yeah. of those. Yeah, and, and that's the, how I know the, the, the river. So now you see all the all the holsters all have adjustment screws and that kind of thing. But his idea was: look, no, you make it right. It's riveted together. The tension is perfect. That you never have a screw that can back out. You never. And um, my buddy Steve Morrison went down to work for him to help him with the holsters and and. Um, so the, the concept of the topic of holsters came up and because as you know, if you're going to carry a gun, you're going to carry concealed or whatever, you're going to, man, you're going to go through a lot of fucking holsters before you I find have drawers full. Everyone Multiple does. Multiple drawers full. I, I'm just, I'm laughing because uh -huh. I'm like, okay, I've 
Okay, just because just recently and went through the whole, you know, okay, I started carrying, you know, appendix instead of, you know, behind three o'clock strong side or whatever yeah. and recently. And it's just, it's a it's a nightmare. So I ended up with <laughs> it's like tough. Yeah. it's tough, yeah. But and they all have screws, and you're always like, okay, well, do I use red Loctite? Do I use the Vibratite? Do I want to put blue on in case I want you know like different belt? Like all of this stuff, and they do, and like the cheap ones are fucked, yeah. And they look just the same as the good ones if on, mm. on your computer screen. Ah, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, but it's also Holy why I have. Shit. I mean, I have a drawers full of good holsters. Oh yeah, uh, there's a lot of good ones that just for whatever reason I tested out and then went to another one or I wanted to try something else and yeah. so they just start they start multiplying it. I tell my wife they're just like rabbits, you know, kind of like the guns they're in the safe. Like they just they're yeah. just in the drawer, man. They're I don't just, know. It gets <laughs> dark in them. there and there's more of them. Exactly, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. It's not me online sitting, click and buy. <laughs> never, uh, never late at night. <laughs> Nope, that doesn't happen. <laughs> That's it. Actually, I'm going to my, my fourth book. I was just writing a scene yesterday, um, a, uh, uh, a gunfight type scene with the tomahawk and all this other stuff. Um, but I have the protagonist, James Reese, going to appendix. And I've been trying yeah. to carry appendix. I'm carrying the exact same thing. Yeah. I have one here right now. But uh, I was trying to carry the exact same thing that I have him carrying. Yeah. Gosh, man, it's tough getting used to that appendix for me. Appendix, and I've, I've really been giving it a, a good college try. I, I gave it a good solid couple months. I know you're a year, year you and a half ago. I know you're a SIG guy, but it, it but but the but the but the premise is mm. the same. What you know, whatever it is, like now you have um, there's so much more available. Like nobody, okay. There was one guy that carried appendix, and um, fuck, I can't. Jim uh, starts with the last name starts with a C, and he was the very famous scene from Miami Vice. Okay, the fir- the guy who was the the firearms sort of uh, oh, guru. Mm. Um, for that TV show, um, and they brought him in for one scene, and I can't and I can't remember. It was a two part episode, um, but he gets confronted by the cop, and he pulls from 1911 from appendix. Oh, nice! You know, double taps. Yeah, you know, cl- clears it, drops oh, it sweet. on the corpse, pulls off the rubber gloves, runs away. It's fucking beautiful. nice. I'm gonna look that um, up. Yeah, I was just about to say you're gonna cool. post. It's it gonna be on Monday. Yeah, for no, sure. It's so yeah. it's it is it, it is, is really fucking good. brilliant. He's got the, the you know the the yellow tinted aviators on. So great. But it's you know it's the short sleeve. Oh, I'll find know, it. Blousey shirt. Oh yeah. No, you can find. It's super. It's yeah. it's, it's very easy. Um, I could probably even have a tab open nice. on my computer. Possibly. <laughs> awesome. Maybe. Watching I don't it over know. and over again. Awesome. You start going with appendix, and there's then the, the the you know the length of the slide is going to matter a lot. It depends if you're going to keep it on you when you're driving, mm-hmm. and how easy it is to get in and out, and all those things, um, and and what type of shirt you're going to wear. But you know there are people right now. I mean, the, I'm seeing like one point one point one draws, you know, first shot draws from appendix carry, you know, in the A zone at five yards, and um, you know, and, and there's probably people even doing it, you know, doing it faster. It's amazing. So it is feasible and you oh, don't yeah. have to, you know, sweep the, yeah. you know, the photo vest or whatever the fuck. Exactly. Thing, you know, so like bad. The oh my gosh. Thing. <laughs> but, but, you know, but back in the day, I mean, like, you know, I, I took a course. Keep the quarters in, in there so it would fly, stay back see, the whole thing. There's yeah. a lot of yeah. safari people. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how many people are photographers with those photo vests. <laughs> so um, ridiculous. But that, but that went away as soon as people had cameras in their phones. Like the whole oh, photo right. vest thing is not a thing. You're just like, ah, you're carrying a gun, dude. I, I know. Um, but, like, of course, I did. It would have been 98. Um, Tom Gibbons and Jim Higginbotham. I mean, they're, you know, uh, guys who are like, FBI in the day and you know been in a number of gunfights and 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 uh 
and that's you know it's a you know strong side you know behind the point of the hip carry kind of thing so it was always fucking sweeping the shirt or you know and it's a and appendix is just it's so fucking fast. Yeah. It's so effective. Like you see these guys do it. Like you see videos, BJ Baldwin out there out yeah. in Vegas. Like, and he actually got in a shooting um, oh, not, not too sure. long ago. And uh, yeah, they messed with the wrong person. I mean, it's just like Terran Tactical Combat Master came out pretty dang quick and yeah. put somebody <laughs> down. Yeah. Pretty Ooh. serious. Yeah. Not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And now that with, I mean, you know, being, uh, you know, st- it was either for me it was always 1911 because that's what i shot in competition um and then the only other firearm at the time you know i I tried i did every new guy mistake of like oh i'm gonna try this because this guy says it was cool and like i'm sorry double action first pull doesn't work for me i can't just throw it away into the dirt as a civilian so you know that did that didn't work and then so that was the 226 and then i bought a Actually, I think the first firearm I bought was a USP-40. Okay. Um, nice. And but if you but if anybody knows that, you know, they have a USP-40 and a 226. Their controls are reversed. So you know, <laughs> um, so you're never going to adapt to that. And then you're then then now I have two. I got to manage 40, and I, mean, I got to reload two calibers. What is it with the first of, gun purchase being the 40? Like is that, like, is that everybody? Because I did the. Well, XD I think it's the 40. time. It's it, the, it, it's it was the, it was an era for sure. It was an oh, era. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, same thing like, with me: a Glock 22 and a Beretta at the same time because yeah. of a lethal weapon and uh, die hard. I had to get exactly. So I bought both at the did same time. Did you have time. the smiley face? On so the, I tried. Yeah, I love it. So I I knew I was getting that just to pay tribute to those those movies and that's when really when i started training before i went into the military yeah because so that would have been hard lethal weapon one is 86 well that's in the 80s yeah Six? that's uh yep it's right in there right in there. there die hard the next year i think yeah and uh but yeah that, i mean that, what a distinctive looking pistol it's so awesome and you're a little kid and you're and like yeah, the military so just ins- got this it's oh man yeah. and uh it's official side on the u.s military now but so that was one of my first purchase those two together but the 40 was one because then early 90s when you're reading about the 40 you're yeah. like oh i'm getting a 40 that's yeah. that's the way to go where today it's like because oh, the so nine in that in that in that fbi shooting in florida or wherever it was the nine uh, wasn't enough it wasn't putting them down you know well, and you're whatever. reading this in the like, gun magazines and you know you're like but yeah. of course since then so much time energy and effort has gone into the development and uh of the, the nine mil round right, yeah. uh to make it really the go-to today yeah and if you look at um uh you, you know go from say oh i want to carry a glock 19 but if i have like probably weigh 148 pounds right now dude i can't like like now We're i gotta start wearing have... a plaid shirt again <laughs> fuck that you know <laughs> i i have a couple nice. you know because every yeah. now and then but um yeah slimline 43x or nice. a 48 yeah. and shield arms is making a magazine a steel magazine now which takes up less space so instead of 10 plus one in a 43 or 48 you get 15 oh, nice. plus one yeah. and then for your spare you can put a plus five extension on it Man, you're walking around with as capable as you would with a 19 or a 17, um, with, with less weight, lower profile, and so things are you know people are just being super innovative, yeah, right now. And that that the new Sig, which is the 365 and 365 XL, and uh, I've been messing around with so many of them lately that I'm gonna okay. I don't wanna mess up my exact yeah, numbers. numbers. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that XL, the 365 XL with the got the Romeo on there. So okay. I'm gonna about the red dot because I want to put it in the novel. Yeah. So I shot with that out at Thunder Ranch not too long ago. I'm going back out there actually so to shoot with uh, BJ Baldwin yeah. and with uh, nice. uh, with Taryn Butler. Where I'll go out there and do a little do a little shooting. But uh, fuck, yeah. when Taryn came on the scene, like he when he first came on the scene, I was still shooting competitively, and it was. 
and it was uh, when he started winning with a Glock. People were like, uh, a whole new era, I yeah. think, is happening. And what a nice guy, too. He's he's, uh, he's a really nice guy. So, um, so yeah, we're going to have to do a little, little shooting together. But, um, yeah, that, that 43 was sweet when that came on the scene. And yeah. the 365 came on the scene a little later. And that thing's sweet. And the XL. And there's just so many options out there now. And uh, that X Compact, though, that's probably my go-to. And it's more akin to, like, a 19, Glock 19. Okay. Um, but, uh, but that thing's pretty legit. And yeah. I just know a lot of people at SIG. They've all been been great to me. And, and uh, of course, I carried the 226 for so many years. Yeah. It was always on my hip, every single deployment, Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever. It was always there. When I took out that body armor, put down my M4, or whatever, to go into a meeting or yeah. whatever else, it was I, always, like, I always had my SIG, yeah. always right there. So that thing just feels like it was made for my hand. So I kind of have a, a little uh, soft spot in my heart for, for SIG. And all the people out there have been wonderful to me over the years, from the CEO on down. They're That's just great, funny. great group. I used to, like, after my experience with that, because I didn't, couldn't, um, I, I didn't, I just couldn't resonate with it. And then I was, the uh, National Shooting Sports Foundation had a, um, an event that took place back at Blackwater. Yeah, um, yeah. This would have been maybe 99 oh, wow. or something like that. 98, 99. So Blackwater was brand, almost brand new. It, it was, it was, to, it was totally new it was yeah. before any, you know, yeah. <laughs> before it no longer existed. Um, yeah. um, but there were a couple of uh, former team guys there. And so, so this, this particular event was like, okay, we're, um, it, it, we're bringing celebrities from different, uh, um, you know, shooting disciplines to share, you know, these experiences and, 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 you know, to talk to public and media and that stuff about it and, and, and put these media people through various types of things. There was a, a couple from that were on the U S biathlon team. Oh, Todd, nice. Todd Jarrett was there. Um, a, a, a cowboy action shooter who's, I think he, I don't know if he was tequila or tequila sunrise or whatever. <laughs> I but love that. that. That's so cool that to watch. Fucker could yeah. run a revolver yeah. like nobody's. Been, holy shit! Amazing. I've always wanted and to do the wild bunch side of that, so you can use a 1911 and use like a trench gun, shotgun type yep. things. So I've always uh, right. wanted to do that at oh. some point, but as yeah, in like life's a been busy. Action shotgun. Is it, is it, is it the? Well, uh, I, I, I think there, there, there was one that yeah. existed. Oh, there is. Yeah, there definitely is, and it's awesome. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> made popular probably by Terminator Two. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. That's pretty sweet, but yeah, there's just a pump action in there, so it's a 1911 pump action, and then something something else, some lever action. Yeah, um, but I've always wanted to to do that when that's, when time allows. That'd be, that's there's like the the interesting disciplines, and they brought me because I was shooting Ipsic at the time, and I was like, here's a famous climber, and nice. blah blah blah, and um and and when I got back there, and first day on the range, meet and greet and everything, and these and one of these uh, former seals was running that 226 as fast as anybody I'd ever seen oh, yeah. run a, run a uh, 1911, yeah. um, you know, in competition. And I was just like, ooh. They're I, shooting I, such, I, there's so many rounds all day. Well, not all day, every day, but yeah. when you're in these blocks of training and you're going down to these certain facilities that we had to go yeah. use and do close quarter combat, you are shooting a lot of rounds through that SIG. And you it did that for 20 years, you're gonna run that thing pretty good. Yeah, you yeah have no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. It's just time. And you were doing that at Blackwater before the days of Instagram. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That must have been so nice. So, <laughs> I mean, so, so refreshing. It was super cool. I mean, the, the, the thing that I came away with after that particular event um, was 
how hard the fucking biathlon is. Oh, I've always wanted to do that. I'm like drawn to the biathlon event. I want to have a character that is a biathlon, a bathlete in one I of mean, these novels coming one up. Of the, one of the best characters in one of those old, one of those uh, Bond movies. Yeah, I know. Sure. I love yeah. it. Like that was fucking yep. badass. I was going to say she's French. <laughs> so it could be. Yeah. For your eyes only, they have a, a scene with a biathlete. Yeah, exactly. She's wearing that green one piece. And, oh, that's some small. Nice, huh? all about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he's on, he's on, he's on skis and he, fucking throws down on cross country whoever they got to double him on like um the guys who were doing like um fuck the, the, who, who did all the ski stunts i mean rick sylvester did the mount thor base jump the ski off mount thor and base spy jump. who love me um, the spy who love me and the, yeah, the yellow yeah. suit and then and that was um, groundbreaking at the time like people saw that for the first time and were like shit. oh my god yeah like that like, was crazy and then the shoot comes out it's the british flag you know the yeah. whole thing the music hits like awesome so awesome. crazy! I can't remember who did the climbing on the the, the church, the, the Greek tower with the monastery on top. Oh yeah, uh, it might awesome. have been Sylvester again. He did, um, that was but, awesome. But the, the prusik as a kid, you're like, what oh, a prusik now? A prusik right. for my shoelace so can't great. happen. <laughs> no, you just hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, that was awesome. But the, the uh, but the summer we had to do summer biathlon, so we're running. Nice. A, you know, I didn't know how to run, um, but B, man, shooting on a pulse is a completely different thing you know you run 400 yards and you try and stand and hit you know so if it mm. standing's 25 yards prone is 50 um and basically the targets are the size of a compact disc if mm, anybody okay. you know if you remember that um and uh man i mean i started like doing a lot more shooting after that yeah like with an elevated heart rate because it's impossible to hold a rifle. You know, oh, you're yeah. like watching and the rifles are so to, cool. Gosh, I love looking at those rifles. Oh, how they sling mm. them so fast. Yeah. And yeah. It's just amazing. I love the gear. Once again, back to yeah, gear. Yeah. So <laughs> that's probably one but of the main draws. Like, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, I love things I love to do. So it's like, I'd I love to get into that. It's just spend awesome. four thousand dollars on a twenty-two rifle. Is exactly. That <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It fires one shot at a time. Yeah, no, it's so great. But I love the reload when they have to go to the reload because they have that few that they can use if they miss. And there's all those rules. And I love watching it now. Like the short course that they do yeah. and how yeah. they film it and how they talk about the background of all the people that do it like I just love watching that I love the all the detail things that you pick up that like <laughs> you can you conceptually just see and you do the same thing it's really actually admirable to watch both of you go back and forth about the details of certain things it's like I don't do that but I well, it's so like cool to watch now because they have the camera right there yeah. and the cameras are oh, yeah. so great. And you're it. seeing these shots, you're yeah. seeing the breathing, you're seeing I watch the it for sure. I love it. It's just so much fun. I'm looking at the effort. Like I'm looking and, at how they calm themselves down. I'm looking for like somebody who's like, you know, where they're pushing, where they're like, I'm looking for the, when they're shutting it, how, how yep. close to the shooting yep. station, they're kind of shutting it down. And then there's like two ways, like some people try and like absolutely calm to hold the rifle you know, as yep. steady as possible. And then there's others just like, fucking let it track yep. and yep. just be, Skunk. And, and just time the tracking. Okay. It's, it, you're going yep. from four o'clock to 10 o'clock or, or for me, it was like, <laughs> six, like and, uh, six and 12. I know totally it's, all, it, it's, there's almost always a sideways component to it, especially standing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was like five o'clock to 11. And if I it would, okay, it goes up, it apexes at 11. It comes back as soon as it touches as soon as the front tight touches the edge of the target, you press off and you may hit the center, but you'll probably uh, be slightly it. low right. But you'll still be on the target if you pre like. So you're watching yeah. it. You're not getting a. You're getting an accurate sight uh, picture, but the sight is not actually on the target yeah. when you press the you trigger. Know where it's going because of the amount of movement that 
the, that's actually pretty clever it's fucking wild it reminds me of metal gear solid which you would appreciate that video like the original video game this old japanese comic uh but then later when they developed it for like bigger and bigger systems the amount of detail that went into weaponry oh, like nice. it was like one of the first games that really picked up on brands like the socom okay and that you know the hk usp 45 like <laughs> yeah. with suppressor and like the built-in like little only yeah, slightly yeah, like smaller so- than a desert yeah, exactly. eagle <laughs> right exactly yeah, yeah exactly. rifle <laughs> And that's like, you know, that's a tag. But that was one of the first games. But they, they incorporated benzodiazepine into the sniping into it. So mm-hmm. like a beta blocker so you could calm yourself. And you have this like shootout battle with another sniper. Ooh, like and that. like so if you if you don't take the benzo, you, you're like kind of all over the place oh, and you'll hilarious. miss. It's kind of erratic. But as soon as you set it, it steadies it. And so you can like But then you the, can't run for shooting exactly. but, yeah. but then if you get in a motor vehicle yeah. afterwards you're yeah. gonna it's have all good lessons for children playing video games yeah, take, the drug. Yeah. Yeah. take benzo shoot somebody and then fall asleep take a nap and you're like hideout yeah i'm not uh, sure how healthy that is but, probably uh, not beta blockers operate differently than a benzo and I, oh, yeah, I never it? got into the I never got into the video game thing, but I missed that craze. I mean, we had the yeah. Atari Twenty Six Hundred growing up, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was awesome. Um, then a little Sega system there for a tiny bit, but then I just think about know, it like this because uh, storytelling in video games is excellent because the money behind it is actually better than movies. Like oh yeah, it's crazy. They put in, huh? I mean, they'll make a billion dollars off of a, bi- a video game. Oh yeah, all the time. It's amazing. And so you you get the backstory, like some of the bigger concept like games. Halo and all these things like the stories are phenomenal and the character development is good all of it it's it's really good storytelling and then you get to like partake in it so it's interactive yeah I mean I tried one and I couldn't get past like a first level like a first thing I step out and get killed step yeah. out and get killed yeah. like ah, yeah I can't do this and it's probably more I, I probably had other things I needed to be doing with my time it's anyway, probably than... more productive not to play them but yeah I invested so much money in a video game, first-person shooter video game called House of the Dead. Oh yeah, <laughs> which was zombies, <laughs> totally. and you got to shoot them in the head. Blah totally. blah blah. And I would like, I would go to the, you know, I'd go get rolls of quarters, and I would go and I would practice and practice nice. and practice, yeah. and and um and I thought I was getting pretty good. Like I like I could go with ten dollars yeah. and leave with change. Then some seven-year-old game. <laughs> no, I was actually. Um, uh, Brian Enos came up to when we were living in Boulder. We were going to, to a concert, and we were on the hill waiting outside the Fox Theater. And next door, there was a place that had a, a video game console, House of the Dead. So Brian was there, and Henning Walgren, and Henning was European Ipsic champion a number of times. And <laughs> um, those motherfuckers could play on a single quarter forever. That's funny. I was just I was just like. Okay, I quit. And that was actually the last night I ever played that video game was showing them showing them that they'd and never played before. Really. And them just like, you know, I was like waiting for my chance to actually play, but the concert probably started before they were, you know, they ran out like they got, you know, killed by zombies or whatever the fuck it was. That's it a was an amazing it was story. Incredible. Brian Eno's got you to stop playing video games. <laughs> Yeah, I've no. got. I gotta. I gotta go torture people. Yeah. But I'm gonna let you guys continue. But I, I, the one thing I got that I didn't mention that I'll 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 leave with. Um, if it's good, it'll be part of you. If it's part of you, it'll hurt you. To be good, you have to hurt. I like that's, it. That's what I, I got out of a conversation. I, I, <laughs> I like it. Wow. That's why. Yeah, you get stronger when you break down. So, break yeah. down muscles when you lose in jujitsu. Yeah. You learn. Oh yeah. Um, either winning, you learn. 
I yeah, love yeah. that. I love that part of it. That's why I love jujitsu for kids. For sure. Uh, so we got our kids all into it. And when we were in San Diego, of course, yeah. there's a lot of great places out there. Um, but yeah, and I love that. for kids, it's like the best anti-bullying it's so great, software you sure. can program oh, into yeah. them. No, absolutely. On both sides of it. You <laughs> yeah. Know, on, on both sides of it. Just not to bully and at the same time teach them, hey, if you... There's so much respect and, that you and you get comfortable, it. And you get comfortable just walking away from something, yeah, which sure. is cool. And if you need to go, you need to go to the guns, you got it. You know, you're comfortable. Like we are talking about the cops earlier, and I heard Jocko and Joe talking about yeah. this not too long ago, just how much stronger we would be as a nation uh, and how much better the cops would be at de-escalation if they were all purple belts yeah, or blue sure. belts. Well, yeah, and he had a good point. Like we need – like cops need training for sure, hands down. Like there's not anybody that isn't better at the job without training. But people need to be trained how how to interact with people too. Duh. Like everybody's demanding that people in positions have training, but everybody needs more training. Like training oh, is yeah. learning and it learning. It seems like the exact, the defund thing we yeah. talked about earlier, you, you want the exact opposite of that. You need more yeah, funding fund. yeah, yeah. to fund, to get this yeah. training to For make sure. them better at their jobs yeah. rather than take it away and make it them For sure. worse at their well, jobs. Last time I checked, and I could be totally wrong, but whenever we have like a part of society that isn't functioning correctly, I think the last thing that we recommend is pulling funding. Yeah. Like when communities are the opposite. Yeah. When communities are more violent or they have more crime, we're like, I'll pull funding. Like take, take everything (laughs) out of there. That's the last reaction. Education, you know, teachers, let's just like pay teachers less Yeah, or have less teachers and bigger class size. Cause that'll, I think we are the result of that actually happening. I think so. It's possible. Yeah. All right, I'll let you guys keep going and wrapping. All right. I think we'll, we'll wrap pretty quick. Michael, thank you. Yeah, man. Um, the it's oh, sparkle you're not going oh the dog is awesome yeah, oh. she's she is sometimes oh. she's, and she just this she just tolerated you know four days on the road and oh, awesome. um, in the car and out meeting all kinds of new people oh, yeah. total lots of new situations and uh people go man she's huge I go well, <laughs> I, and I don't see it because I live with her, right. you know. So, um, but yeah, an eighty-five pound wolf-looking kind of thing. There it is. Yeah, nice, nice, what? good girl. Love it. Yeah, I had to incorporate Nick. the dog stuff into the the third novel as well, just because it oh, uh, yeah. it's such a big part of well, going down range now. They've saved so many lives over the last twenty years, um, and then it's just getting out and moving on and seeing what they do service and support wise for people dealing with post-traumatic stress or uh, traumatic brain injury or just having a companion because now you don't have a leg or whatever else there's just yeah. it, it had to incorporate that in because they're such a big part of the, the former community that uh that i was a part of and then is now a part of the veteran community on the outside on the keeping outside, guys exactly. alive and that's not uh yeah rescue 22 is a, a foundation that i'm involved with that provides service and support dogs for guys that need them and uh is yeah, that ritland's uh, no, nope, he has a Warrior Dog Foundation. Warrior Dog, okay. Yep, and he he is amazing. So he provides a essentially an old folks home for dogs that have yeah. served in uh, their canine units with police forces or in the military, so they don't get euthanized. Yeah, because um, a lot of them have a hard time. Then there's like a human. Well, they're they're, they're transitioning. They're just like yep. man. There's no. Really? I don't. And so he gives them an amazing place. I've been down there. It's so cool. It's all this space. They run around and he has it all set up. So they live in these amazing places. And then he knows which ones can go together and which ones not and all that sort of thing. So they get their exercise. They're free and they live out their lives uh, down there in Texas in a beautiful spot. So it's pretty cool. So I put that in the book, Warrior Dog Foundation, put Rescue 22 in there. So I I wove those things in. And once again, it's just uh, making them novel personal and, and not forcing it either it's just a natural thing to uh, to incorporate, to incorporate into this and because it's, it's making, a part of me and and it's i mean in some of those details it's just 
like I, you know, I read them and I know about these, you know, and like I sent you that picture with Bill and some uh, uh, PJ and a couple other guys there that um, where you know when we um, just to understand how much um, interaction there is between man and dog and yeah. always has been, yeah. and to 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 realize like I mean when you write it I just I read it and I'm like oh now yeah yeah I know about that because I you know I yeah. slept with one of those you know yeah. those dogs or we went out in the totally. mountain or I've seen them or because it's natural for you you write it naturally and but I think it's rather extraordinary for many readers you know some of these things that are become because we don't understand what human beings are capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, what what they can do or the relationships that they can develop and you know when never having been exposed to them and when you say look I didn't do it for me I did it for the guy next to me who says that in the civilian world Mm -hmm. who has ever like been in a situation where that was something that was experienced and um, and to to, or and to be around those dogs in that like I think uh, when we did that trip the only well, there may be some uh, Scandinavian who, who have snowmobiles generally, mm-hmm. but I think it was only the I think it was only JTF that that had been. Um, is that what they are up there in Canada? Is it JTF? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that were that were um, using dogs on snowmobiles. Nice, um, so and, cool. Until the that trip where yeah had some guys come down and they're pretty you know those dogs are so fucking adaptable so smart it's incredible i mean you always got to bribe them in some way to you know kind of to, to do something it, it seems um but they were just like sitting there on these snow machines like nice like tear assing around and it was it, yeah i'm I, I was and it was never a dog person um you know growing up we didn't, weren't allowed to have you know pets uh, uh i mean i had a salamander and a hamster something. Yeah, something. Yeah, you know, not anything you really have to take care of, right? You know, whatever. But when I, um, sort of, I'll just say, you know, married in air quotes into my first relationship, it was with an Akita, female Akita, who wow. was six at the time, and she changed utterly changed my life. Oh, and taught me how to like relate to human beings, uh-huh. um, in in a way. And uh, and so when I hear about people, I mean, it's just especially with Akitas because when they're puppies they're they look like little teddy bears and mm-hmm. nobody knows that they're like one of the most stubborn willful oh, sort wow. of it's an ancient breed okay and um and uh uh and they're going to grow up into something that, that you know to an animal that's that will handle you if you can't handle it and so many get turned in Ugh. by people who can't yeah. handle you know can't deal with them and end up getting euthanized you know Ugh. it's like and it's it, it breaks my heart, and yeah. so you know I see what Ritland's you know oh, doing from so afar, cool. yeah. and I'm just like, man, there's a couple of you know when I do make charitable contributions, you know, each year at the end of the year because my tax you know account yeah. says, hey, what do you do? You know, it's always to an Akita Rescue. Oh, uh, cool. You know, foundation because. Yeah. Because I think it's important, and you know, maybe one, and I, and I don't think I could ever run one because I would just. You know, in the end, I'd just start hunting people down, <laughs> yeah, and, and making them pay for what they did to a dog that didn't deserve it. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. We do the uh, like it's more to have touch points with these different organizations. I think personal touch points because uh, one of our ways of giving back is this merchandise that I have on the mm-hmm. side, like hats and these really cool uh, bookmarks that have a five five six round attached. And there's a veteran owned company, and it has a little saying, "Never tell me the odds," which is kind of like my mantra. Okay, and uh, so I have all these different things on the sites, but all the profits. That's a good mantra, right there. <laughs> yeah. that Thank you. Is nice. 
nice. Thank you. It's uh, and it's really it's really I say never tell me the odds because it fits better on the thing, but yeah. it's really uh, don't pay attention to those to, odds because so many people yeah. are going to tell you you can't do something, uh, especially if you say I want to be a seal or you want to write a book. Uh, the same type of people tell you how hard it is. They make a point to tell you how difficult it is to do those things and what the odds are against you succeeding. But uh, so many great things have been done by people who were told the odds. And whose response was, I'll show you. That's it. Use which, it as fuel. Which is, use it as fuel. I'd have to say that'd be my mantra. So yep. we like flip nice. a coin and on one side could That's be, it. don't, don't, That's don't it. pay attention to the odds. And the other side is, I'll show you. Because I mean, it was, I had a, you know, semi-troubled relationship with dad and, and, uh, um, and a lot of stuff that I've done, I was told I couldn't do. Yeah. And, you know, so a lot of it is, you know, proven it. And yeah, no, absolutely. I still feel slightly driven by that. Yeah. It's part of us. That's for sure. And, uh, and point B from those, all those profits there, they go to five or six different veteran foundations that are on the site okay. on, on Jack Carr USA, which is the merchandise site. But I have a touch point with each one of those organizations, a personal touch point. So it's not just, oh, this is a, a organization that does this that I have no touch point with. They have a good website yeah. and whatever else. No, it's, it's uh, this is going to Rescue 22 because I know the guys that started it and I've seen what they do. Uh, and I've know people who are alive today because of what they did. Uh, or here's one that does. What are some of the others? Uh, yeah. They yeah. do another one called um uh valor for life which does no cost spine surgery for special operations veterans so instead of the military fusing your spine yeah. they look at it and there are doctors that do all the red bull athletes okay so they see younger people that have injuries that typically would have been for someone in their like 80s or 90s yeah. uh you know in, in 30 years ago but today because someone's doing at 22 years old is doing a backflip on a motorcycle or whatever else and lands lands on top of them yeah. well now they have this injury in a younger person and they have all this experience now working with these kind of extreme athletes doing those crazy things that get injured in a way that they only used to see in people 70 80 90 years old in the past yeah. so uh instead of the military fusing your spine like they were going to do to mine um i went to these people and they looked at it and said, you know what we need to do? We're going to shave a little bit off this bone. that's crushing a, a nerve here. Um, and we don't need to fuse your spine. So I said, well, let's do that. Oh, let's, yeah. yeah. It's no cost I, I like, surgery. I like your, yeah. uh, I like, I'm buying what you're selling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, so all of the ones on there, the five or six different organizations I have on there, I, all, I have a personal connection to, okay. um, yeah, then, uh, mostly through people that are, uh, a friends of mine who are alive today because those organizations exist. So it's my way of being able to give back. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I didn't want to just throw a t-shirt up or something. I wanted it to first, all those things have to be next level. Yeah. Um, because that's just who, who I am. But then I wanted to also use that as the, as the kind of the, the avenue to give back. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Red Bull and, and, um, we have a very dear friend who's been involved with their marketing and media for, for a long time. And, and, uh, I was out at, uh, conference last year that, you know, where there were a number of felt, you know, the liminal collective guys, mm, you know, I don't uh, know. uh, well, the, the, a couple of the guys used to run the Red Bull performance group or whatever, okay. and they're doing their own thing, uh, Andy and Jurgen and, and, uh, oh, okay. um, and, and, a lot, and some, and, and then Chris, our friend, Chris Warden has been involved in the media and stuff and, um, and marketing with them. And, and, uh, the, you know, it's easy to kind of write that whole organization off as like, ah, oh, they're, you know, making money to, you know, sell this thing or whatever and blah, 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 um, and, and, and d dismiss them. But the good that has come out of that has been, uh, I think it's been remarkable, yeah. um, in, in many ways. And, and, uh, last, uh, 
don't know, say six months ago or seven months ago, there was a, a climbing accident, you know, one of the, and it was on a Red Bull sponsored trip and it was mm-hmm. down in Mexico and there's fatality and, oh. um, and, uh, and our, you know, Chris sent me a text. He was like, Hey, we just, this thing go down. Do you know anybody who can get in, you know, can help repatriate some people from down South? And I'm like, uh, let me call a friend and, mm-hmm. and cause you know, it's a relationship with some, you know, past, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, military and intelligence organizations or whatever, and sent somebody his, you know, I made contact with somebody and, and that guy contacted Chris and da da da. And then, and then, you know, there's a bunch of stuff on the, on, on the social media saying, ah, oh, Red Bull, they're just exploiting, blah, blah, blah. But they fucking, they organized the, you know, what needed to be done and they footed the entire bill. Yeah. It's like, that is, ab, you know, I have way more respect. In, you know, after that than I yeah. ever did before, but just yeah. in terms of what they've facilitated and, and, in you know, helping humans do what other humans said they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was amazing. Pretty fucking cool. And so to hear that, you know, there's, there's a medical component to that, that is oh, yeah. now transitioning and available to veterans is, uh, okay. Oh yeah. Buy more Red Bull. No, absolutely. <laughs> That's why they can work on these guys. Cause they've seen these, kind of accidents before with these people doing extreme sports specifically in this case through red bull um but yeah the brain treatment center is another one uh a friend of mine a couple friends of mine are alive today because of what they did um so yeah all these ones i have touch points with it's you know my little way of being able to do something that is i mean what a good use for you know uh yeah tell tell the stories and 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 then help yeah, which is what maybe we should all be doing. Well, yeah, doing the doing the best I can, and uh, just like we all are, you know. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, the main part of all this, I think, if there's anything else other than a product being the book that uh, that I do, it's it's being able to give back through the merchandise. But then also, even if people never read the book, they never buy a hat, they can see, oh look this person did this. He had this dream to be a seal. He had this dream to write fiction in this genre and he did it. And uh, we have some other things at home. We have a a special needs middle child. And so that sometimes I bring up every now and again is appropriate because there's so many people out there that are dealing with things like that and that are just stuck because it is so difficult for them to be able to look and say, Oh, look at this guy did these things while he had this, this child and all whatever. Hopefully it just, at its base shows people what's possible. Like you can yeah. do it. Like don't let people tell you you can't and don't just look at the odds and don't look at the percentages, how many families fall apart if you have a special needs child, how many fa- families fall apart if you're in the military and special operations or whatever else. Uh, like, okay, fine. Uh, or how hard is it to get published by Simon & Schuster? Okay, whatever. Like don't pay attention to those things. Focus on the writing. Do it if that's what you want to do. Whatever it is you want to do, whether it's climbing, writing, snowmobile, who knows? Business, doesn't matter. But focus on doing it. Rather than just, oh, this is really hard. I probably, I'm not able to do that. Like so-and-so did it. I don't know how they did it, but I'm just going to, whatever. You can do it. Like it's possible. And you have one shot. You have this one life. This is it. This is your time. They're not going to get another. Uh, And you, one ride on this planet. That's it. So this is your time to do it. It's not to sit down and look at the odds and spend your life looking at the odds. No, (laughs) get out there and do it. Put those odds aside and crow get after it and crush it. That's what we're here for. And I think sometimes you need to set up the conditions to make you do the work. Like if you don't, you know, and a lot of people, you know, let's say in the fitness space, you know, they get involved with a trainer or a coach or whatever um, to hold them accountable right, or something <laughs> like that. And just like, you know, I, when I went into the extreme alpinism project, 
I did. I wanted it to be a certain way. I wanted to look, at, you know, that it had to be done in a certain way. And so when I we designed the contract with the, uh, the Mountaineers Books, who was the publisher, um, you know, because I'd talked to some other guys and and uh, that that had done books, and then you know they took the money, they spent the money, and then they were handcuffed to mm. the publisher's desired outcome. Uh. And, um, and I was just like, well, that's, you know, you're not gonna handcuff me with a fucking <laughs> chick, you know, or whatever. You're not the boss so, of me. So, yeah, I mean, which is, I guess, typical of my nature and attitude. Um, said, look, we're gonna do, I, I wanna do this, this book, but I'm not taking the money. What I wanna do, we're gonna sign a letter of engagement. I'm gonna give you right of first refusal, essentially, is like, you will sign this letter, you agreed to pay me the advance, the day you accept the manuscript, hmm. you know, and, and then, then, you know, because the royalties aren't going to come for a, a long time and I'm not going to make any money off of it anyway. It's a climbing book after all. Um, <laughs> uh, um, you know, I would make maybe some money on a book tour. Like if I go around and do multimedia things to promote it, I might make some money that way, but from the book itself, probably not. But, um, but I didn't want to have that money, you know, spent and gone and hanging over my head or, right. or, or have them think that they could steer because I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. And, and you know, and they said, "Well, we've never done it like this before." And I said, "Well, I've, yeah, I've done a number of things in the mountains that <laughs> have never been done before. That have yeah. been done before. Thought about things. So, so, um, to just because like the those, um, I I needed to have the contract to help me do the work, right. but I also, um, believed enough in that work that I could go to them and say, kind of give them a take it or leave it." sort of situation that um so regardless of the circumstances you know of what the normal uh-huh. publishing thing or the normal business relationship that people have you can rewrite it if you're good enough i mean it's in the article nice. you know the, the 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 essay that you know the the dune quote you pulled out of the twitching with twite um um essay yeah. which um you know based, there's another line in there that says if you're good at what you do no one cares what you look like yeah you don't have to look a certain way to do the thing. Just do the thing. Be good at it. Become good at it. And and then the rest of it doesn't, all that other bullshit doesn't matter. Competence yeah. matters. And what's great about that is you identified what was important to you at some point along the way in your life. And you then were able to make decisions like with the book that you just mentioned uh, because you'd already decided what was important to you and what you were going to stick to. Um, and not saying you weren't going to change along the way, but you identified what was important to you, which is different than learning and adapting. And same yes. thing for me. When I left the military, before I got out, I identified what was important. And for me, that was freedom yeah. in my schedule and freedom financially, those two things. And if both of those things weren't attached to a project or an opportunity, I didn't have to spend any time worried about it, any time exploring that option. I knew I could say no right away. I didn't have to explore, well, we could move to Ohio and it's a great opportunity and this, if it didn't hit both of those things. So if it was freedom in my schedule, but not enough money, done. Or if it was a ton of money, but no freedom in my schedule, done. Like I didn't have to waste any more time than that. That was the exact amount of time I wasted on those opportunities. And that allowed me to then focus on what I was truly passionate about, which was the writing. So I think for people, it's really important to have a good understanding, one of yourself and going to the backcountry certainly helps with that, but identifying what is important to you because it helps you make decisions. Because essentially, you know the answer as soon as the question is asked. You, you know before. Set up sort of a flow chart of, of like, a, you know, you run whatever through it and it makes decisions quite easy. Yep. 
Yep, Good. it really helps you. And it's not necessarily easy. It's that it helps you with that time, with that bandwidth, because you have only so much of it. And sure. it helps you focus where it needs to be rather than I'm going to go down this rabbit hole and we're going to explore all these options. And should we move? How are the schools like here? You know what? It didn't fit this criteria. So it's automatically done. doesn't and matter. I don't have I'm, to look I'm, at all those Exactly. And I'm focused this bandwidth here in a productive way that's helping me move forward rather than wasting it over here when I already know the answer. So, so you did that with the book. You did that with your life. Um, and uh, I think it's important for people making a transition in life, no matter what it is. It doesn't have to be from the military. It can be from anything. It can be getting out of college. It can be a divorce. It can be the death of a loved one. Whatever it is. It can be whatever you do after you've been canceled. Trans- exactly. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. exactly. What do I do now? I was a journalist. I did, um, right. Have you read the letter of resignation? Um I don't know if it's Barry or Barry yep. Weiss. I didn't read the, the whole thing, but I I saw excerpts from it. And Whoa. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Good for her. I, it's just like I do some research. Who is this? I want to talk to this person. <laughs> like this is yeah. one of the most brilliant pieces of like of, of writing. I'm that just like, great. man, I was just punched in the gut multiple times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah, been, I hope that opens so. more doors for her as she makes I, this transition. Yeah. Uh, and I and I kind of think it will. Oh, for, absolutely. Yeah, because it was so well written. It wasn't just it wasn't angry. No. It was just so well written and it wasn't cynical, you know? It was smart and thoughtful and deeply and timely. Deeply personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was and, fantastic. Uh, yeah, man. So, we'll just sort of wrap up. Terminalist, true believer, savage son. That's it. Um, Three right now. Are, working on the fourth. Working on the devil's hand right now. Okay. So, I'll go back to that uh, tonight when yeah. I get home. Yeah. Thank and, you for uh, taking time away. Of course. Away oh, it's an from, honor. My goodness. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. And it was really wonderful to, um, for me to you know, revisit some memories of some really solid dudes. Yeah. What an amazing time. Some cool projects. Well, you certainly had an impact uh, specifically on those those commands that uh, that you got to go down range with and not even just those ones, but everyone who wore that gear that uh, that you helped develop uh, certainly kept people alive downrange and in training and made us more effective and efficient on the battlefield. So um, absolutely incredible. So thank you for that. Uh, and it's an honor to be here. Well, th- yeah, um, you're, you're welcome for that. And thank you for... Uh, I don't know. A lot of that worked for me, and the you know, if I have to had to explain it back then, it took me a long time to realize. Like, um, I I had privilege, let's say, of look, I'm born in this country. I had the passport that allowed me to go wherever I wanted to go. I had the freedom and opportunity to do what mm-hmm. to make a choice to do exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah, had the financial means. You know, I I could work whatever job. I could set up jobs. You know, yeah, I work a restaurant job, and I you know work three 10 hour shifts or whatever. And that gave me four days off a week to go climbing. Nice. So fuck it. I'll do that. I'll be a bus boy. I don't give a fuck because I get to go climbing. That's it. And I had all of those opportunities, um, or to work for, you know, one month in, you know, helping sell fashion stuff and then have three months off. That's the Himalayan trip right there. Awesome. It's like, I make enough money in the, in that month you know, to, with some help from sponsors to be able to go to the Himalayas or yeah. whatever. And, and, um, so I had all of that. And, and when the opportunity came up to, um, to actually, uh, pay that for that, you know, to give back to, in, um, and, and in recognition of that, um, it, by doing that work, original work with the military, 
Um, and, it, and it morphed into other things. And yeah, for sure, I was paid for my time. But man, to be able to you know do something where I was able to either educate or or develop a gear that helped you you guys do your jobs more effectively, yeah. and, but more importantly, come home to family. That to me was um, uh, yeah a period of my life I'm pretty fucking proud of. Oh yeah, you should be. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, and looking forward to yeah. Let's uh let's, let's not make this the last time we link up. I don't think it will be, <laughs> uh, especially after. Um, and thank you for hardback versions. Absolutely. Of this. I, one thing I never saw you a book, particular book I never saw you mention. Um, are you familiar with a character named Nikolai Hell? Yes, from uh, uh yes, yes. Okay, I've, I've, I was going to say if you hadn't read it. I was going to, to, to by hook or by hook, yep. find a hard hardbound copy for you. Because, oh, thank you. Because yes. Trevanian, I mean, to me, I, I, I was exposed to him by way of the Iger Sanction, the the, the climbing okay uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, book, the, which was uh, Clint Eastwood's directorial debut. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was nice. the first time he directed a movie, um, and obviously he was the star in that in, in that in that same movie. And there was a bunch of climbers from back in the day, Chick Scott. Uh, Etc. Who worked on the did all the technical consulting on it? Um, yeah, my aging brain prevents me from. I gotta watch that one again. It's been so long since I've seen that movie. Some of the best one-liners. Is it? Uh, oh, gosh. oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean George Kennedy's in it. Jack Cassidy. I mean it's it's a it's a brilliant cast as well. Nice. Um, and there there was a whole thing you know like in Reinhold Messner's book The Big Walls when they mm. they talk about like they did the. Um, the not the first one day ascent, but they did, they climbed a, he and Peter Hobbler did the North face in 10 hours and wow. they were on the face and they were doing it while that movie was being made. Oh, wow. You know, picture of him with, you know, Eastwood and, oh, that's cool. And that, and, um, Love but so I got, got in there, um, via that. And then that character, the, you know, the climber assassin, um, you know, he's back. The, the loose sanction was the next book. He's yeah. back in London. <laughs> um, a parody type thing. Oh, oh no. The, all of these things yeah. were, which, and Shibumi too. When I, when I first, they're when, interesting. When I was in high school, I didn't know it was parody. Right. It's just like, and a, it's a, a straight, it's a different thing. If you come into it, not knowing that, like it's a shock. It's a, t- yeah. And then recently, so a, a guy came out, um, Thomas, he's a, uh, a he, he works in cardiac intensive care at, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and he's been out a couple of times for symposiums. And the first time he came out, um, he brought me a copy of that book, and I started rereading it, knowing yeah. you know this is many years after that. I'd read sure. it you know three four times, um, but now a bit more experienced. And I understand I the it. fun they're making of the CIA, uh-huh. like poking fun at the CIA, poking fun at all of like. It, it and poking fun at, at characters in those kinds of novels yeah. with this guy who's who's killing prowess, his sexual prowess. Yeah, it's yeah. just like you know from another it's planet. There. It's just uh-huh. out there, and, and his historic, you know, his history growing up and everything. It like what an amazing guy. And, and uh, my client partner Barry Blanchard, um, I can't remember Trevanian's the pen name, and I can't remember um, his, his real name, but he, I, he was a um, he was a professor at a university in Edmonton. Oh, is that right? I believe. And, uh, and Barry had him as a teacher for one. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Like in a way. I mean, which I would have killed for, but yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Anyway, but a lot of those things, um, the, the, the like I said, the, all, many of the authors and you had mentioned, I've, I've read. And, and another guy that I wanted to ask you about is Marcus Wynn. No, I don't know that one. Uh, former Marine. Um, he's got, uh, we had an email correspondence going at some point, super. But I changed email programs. I was trying to find it 
uh, his address recently, but because um, he came out with a new book, and and, and uh, I think he lives in the tw- Twin Cities area because huh. that's where his, most of his stuff is set. Um, one of his books is called Air Marshals. That one's pretty good. There's, but he's got a couple of um, characters in earlier books, the names of which I can't remember, and he would be angry at me because <laughs> we have corresponded. Um, uh, guys who are you know f- former you know, green or wherever they came yeah. from. And, and, and he's also a gear guy. He's always, oh, nice. he's got, you know, custom, uh, so-called Browning high powers and all of his things, the knives that the <laughs> characters school. use are all like, yeah, exactly. No <laughs> kidding. No kidding. I got yeah. have somebody pull out a Browning high power at some point. You should. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's, you know, it's a, it's uh, yeah, a classic. The, the, I will weave it in. There has to be the right character. He has, yeah. has to tell a story about that person. It does, which, you know, in this day and age, uh, Maybe it's former SAS. Could be. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because they made that famous. You know, they did make that famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just watched Six Days recently, actually. Oh, I need to watch that. Yeah. It's it's uh, some of the arch- the special operations archetypes are absolutely visible. I think yeah. they had good technical consulting on the, the, yeah. the who and the why. Nice. But anyway. Nice. Thank you again for coming awesome. down. And Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. And I uh, love the place. So fun. Yeah. yeah. We'll I do mean, it again. If you, once you get, I know that, you know. There's the 5 a.m. group up there in Park City. Oh, man. Um, yeah. And, and Hobie's actually been sitting where you are. And he's oh, like, nice. Um, we had a, re- did a really good podcast with him. That guy's energy. Oh, my gosh. His incredible. Incredible human being. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a um, specimen. Like, and not just physically, but you know, emotionally, spirit. Like he's about living his best. I, that's a weird thing to say. I hate people say, but yeah. it's it's about maximizing his potential as a human in all at all levels. Yeah, whether that's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, so great. And then Eric Snyder, I think he's been down here as well. Worked out with you before. He's a great guy up there. But these guys are animals. Yeah, animals. I had Jesse Meeson here the other day. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because um, we've been talking Such a about great guy. He's trying to. Um, figure out and, and we're trying to, I guess, sort of he, mostly him driven trying to figure out a way. Cause, um, uh, Kyle was, uh, when he got killed in Pakistan was working on the second edition of extreme alpinism and, uh, and, um, and he was one of Jesse's best friends and, uh, and Jesse's been trying to kind of pick up the torch and we're trying to figure yeah. out a way to get it, you know, done the, the publisher of Mountaineers books said, Hey, if you did it. And I said, look, I got no bandwidth, you know, and Jesse's been working on it. And Kyle was like a, you know, a, more than a third away of wow. the way through it. And um, so we've had a couple of meetings and uh, hope he does it. I, yeah. I hope so too. Hope he's listening to this yeah. and, uh, and wherever yeah, he is I'm in, in, uh, yeah, in the world, I think he's in Hawaii or something. Or, uh, no, he, came, he came back from there. Okay. Yeah. They wrote out the COVID in Hawaii, which I was yeah. laughing about, but uh, that's a super good crew of people. But if, yeah. but you ever want to come down oh, for, you. you know, either a symposium, which is oh, basically a conversation. Awesome. That's what we do. Um, or any of the other stuff we do. Oh, I appreciate here. that. That'd be an honor. I'll let you know. Yeah. I might train up for a little bit first. I've been working on my typing skills more than I have been on my, uh, lifting, running, that sort of thing recently. Uh, but as soon as I get book four done, it's, uh, I, I tend to prioritize these days. Got to prioritize and execute and, Gotta uh, prioritizing it. that book four. But so I would love to come down and, and, uh, and see yeah, test, put, put myself we, to the test down we, here. We don't do, you know, there was the crucible in the old Jim Jones days. Uh-huh. Where I was like, I'm going to test your metal, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, you know, if, if I go do, I'm afraid I might be found wanting th- these days. Uh, well, I certainly would as well. <laughs> Cause, um, I have an affinity for late nights and, nice. and, uh, it seems, seems to be some alcohol fueled writing. Nice. But, yeah, um, I get it. <laughs> Believe me, I get it. That makes get, the, that <laughs> makes the wake up hard in the morning. It does. Yeah. It does. But no, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate it. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll come down. We'll do that for and sure. We were thinking actually next time we'd get Trevor in. Oh, awesome. To, to do, to have a conversation just cause that. Totally. I, fuck, I 
dig that guy's energy. And, oh, he's great. Yeah. When such getting such good photos, and I'm seeing your influence on those as well. So, ah, uh, very cool. He's he's done a he's done a ton of work. He's incredible. Yeah, yeah. great stuff. Great guy. So I'll see him in a couple of days here in Montana, and we'll be yeah. back down in Utah doing the uh, Total Archery Challenge here next week. So we'll uh, we'll be together. We'll. Um, Barklow come down for I the, forget it. I asked him if he's coming down and he was not sure if he's coming to Utah. He's going to do the Montana one. I think because yeah, it's like now. right down this road. Yeah. And so he wasn't sure about uh, Utah. So we shall see. Yeah. He and I, um, we need to see each other. Again. Yes. Cause it's great. cause yeah, did some good work together and then kind of lost touch and oh, yeah. he's great. He's one of my favorite people. I'm really psyched to, that actually just to, to say that, you know, and it's funny cause it seems like since I started, um, got kind of back into shooting that some old relationships are coming back into my life and it's really neat oh cool uh um had a couple of guys uh uh, yeah just just you know when our focus shifts it seems that our relationships shift with it yeah and it's natural if you're um and it's really yeah and it's just hard if you're that, that person who just you know shines a spotlight rather than a floodlight on stuff yeah. then you know some of that stuff goes away and and uh it's it's getting it's been cool and yeah maybe we'll get out shooting too i need to work on that as well before i show up at the thunder yeah. ranch with uh with taryn and bj and this crew coming up here in the next few months i need to get back on the pistol a little bit yeah there's a you know the the ring i don't know if you've been out to the range in heber uh no i've heard about it i've not been out yet that's a that's a that's a good one um but yeah, generally we've been going out to the desert. I've got you know we've got you know, cardboard and steel targets. Yep. And we go set up our own thing where sure. no one can sort of. Oh yeah, I say like being, that's a safety violation. Yeah, I like being outside <laughs> on my own, nobody else around. Like that's how I like to to shoot. Just a, a group of trusted people, trusted agents, right there yeah. that are all pushing each other and learning. And um, yeah, rather than inside on a range or uh, at a range where there's. The, on a line stand and behind this bench yeah, and exactly load and make ready yeah. exactly well let's do it okay all right thank you awesome thanks so much